The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are our own or those of our guests. And I know we represent the views of the companies, associations, or organizations that any of us may work for or represent. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they were told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. We've got Quebec, and um, uh, we uh, we understand our now two uh, runway two seven, and uh, we are now in emergency aircraft. United flight six zero nine Rogers, cockpit secure, and they try to breach. Um, cockpit is secure. No attempted breach of the cockpit. United flight six zero nine Rogers, and you are declaring emergency. Affirmative. United flight six zero nine Rogers. United Point 609, uh, what happened on board and is the person detained? Person is detained, uh, attempted uh, opening of an uh, external door, emergency door. Uh, that person was subdued and is being detained right now. However, not going quietly. He's just laying there with six able bodies on top of him. Welcome aboard Flight 131 of the Squawk Ident Podcast, recorded on the 29th of March, 2023, from the Mobile Aviator Sound Studios, high atop the fourth floor of the Hilton Madison Monona Terrace Hotel in Madison, Wisconsin. Kind of cold out there. On today's flight, we have the honor of being joined in the mobile studios here on the layover by an aviator whose journey began in the Pacific Northwest when his older brother dared him to take a demo flight after a heated discussion that people with glasses can't fly airplanes. From student pilot to airport lineman to instructor and finally airlines, his experiences led him to piloting Bondurani's, Jetstreams, Brasilia's, MD-80s, 737s, and currently is a legacy airlines captain on the Airbus A320 family of aircraft. He's a storyteller, a model aircraft collector, a professional money waster with his performance car and motorcycle hobbies, prone to collecting almost anything if left unsupervised. Here to share his journey in aviation with us, please help me in welcoming Captain Dave Buckmiller to the podcast. Dave? Hey, John, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, you know, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. You know, I've bribed many a captain to join me on a layover to record some audio for this podcast adventure that I've been on in the past few years. And this is not the first time we've flown together. And from my recollection, the last time we flew together, we laughed a little bit too much. Yes. And uh, sterile cockpit was bent (laughs) a little bit. (laughs) I mean, you know, sterile, sterile schmeral. I mean, it's over, Telling jokes and stories. And I just thought you were a fantastic, fantastic storyteller. And uh, then when I saw your name again appear on the uh, employee list or the NS or whatever your airline might call it, but the uh, the list, the manifest for our sequence together, I actually was excited because I remembered some of the stories you told me and I was looking forward to hearing some more. And yes, we've had some pretty heated discussions over the last few days of flying together about what the industry is producing yes. right now. Yes. And, you know, after a little bit of bribing and convincing, it didn't take that much, uh, you agreed to be here. So thank you. Well, I'm very happy to be here. And yeah, it's interesting to be able to contribute something to the aviation world, such as it is, or community, or whatever we want to call what's out there right now. Uh, yeah, so very glad to be here. Yeah, and, and our trip together has been... Not 
too overwhelming. Um, it's it's a four day trip. It's a four day sequence. Uh, we started out in Ontario together, over at Legacy Airlines, um, flying out of Ontario on the first day. Uh, it was kind of tiring. I recall. It's a. Yeah. Uh, I think that day was blo- touching seven hours block, six fifty seven block. Yeah. And then yesterday was a little over six again. Today's not so bad. It's going to be around five, and then tomorrow is going to be another five. But the original sequence was only blocked for 23-something hours because the last leg was actually a deadhead. And then about a week ago, they changed it to a live leg. So now we're looking at a 25-hour and change a four-day trip. So now you're pushing six hours average each day, which is that's getting up there, I think, for some of these sequences of ours. Yeah, and it's interesting how you said that. Um, and let's just explain to some of our listeners that might not understand. So a block hour for a trip is the flight time that we will be paid uh, in the process of whatever, how many days it is. In this particular instance, it's a four-day trip. And before the trip started, they changed the trip on the very last leg, as you mentioned, from what was scheduled to something different. And the difference was instead of deadheading that very last leg, they changed it to an alive leg, meaning we are actually at the controls of the aircraft flying it. Yes, they can do that. And no, there are no repercussions to the, the scheduling department for doing such a thing. They can legally do it. So they did it. And not a big deal. We're going to be on the airplane anyway. There was no legality against it. But that just turns into four flying legs on the last day. Which you know, in the last podcast that uh, me and me and the other co-hosts were talking about uh, the fatigue, fatigue risk management, FAA safety summit, what they discussed, and a lot of the incidents that have been happening in the country and around the world when it comes to pilot errors and air traffic controller errors have been in part sometimes due to bad decision making that potentially could have been from fatiguing situation. Maybe not the pilots or the controllers were fatigued at that very moment, but the situation, um, you know, could have been contributed to by this optimization of schedules or the schedule sodomizer, as we like to jokingly (laughs) call it. Now, our trip here, uh, day one, we did three legs. Day two, also three legs. And today is day three. And we get to only do two legs. Two legs, two legs, a little bit long leg from uh, Madison to Phoenix, about three forty. I think it's going to be the block here. Take a couple hours up to Boise there. So, you know, the takeoff and landings. If you don't do so many, that's arguably somewhat less fatiguing in a day. But you know, uh, other than that, some people can deal with it better than others. Uh, Tony and I are both uh, ex commuter level civilian pilots um you could argue that i don't know if you're get used to it but we're multi-leg days to us are not completely unusual uh, yeah. in our past and so you don't you know but to uh oh let's say a long time wide body fo you know he's maybe maybe flying ultra long haul one leg a day kind of thing and then he upgrades to our world the neuro body world next you know he's flying four legs that guy might be having a little bit of an issue with the multi legs. So it's interesting to point up to point out to you not to get off on a tangent, but just this morning, uh Buttigieg, the current 
uh, Secretary of Transportation, I guess it is, along with the current FAA administrator, I can't remember. Uh, Mr. Nolan. Who he is. Uh, he's pointed out, they said that the recent spat of uh, incidents, near misses, mishaps with the system, they've decided that it's because all of us aviators, controllers, everybody's getting kind of rusty. And that COVID caused a lot of retirements, so a lot of experienced people left. And then the people that stayed, they were off for COVID. Now they're coming back. And then they say what's causing it is us being rusty. But when we're sitting here talking about fatigue, I'm not so sure it's us being rusty or if it's the industries come roaring back. You have not quite so many people performing all these duties that there were before. And now they're being pushed. And like the trip we're even talking about now, you get into these multi-leg days, you get into these, oh, let's make them fly four legs today instead of the three they were scheduled to. Let's, you know, let's change the schedule on them. Let's extend them another day. The system is kind of forcing the companies in the industry to do that. And it could be fatigue as opposed to us being rusty as to why maybe these mishaps are starting to increase. Yeah. You know, they're pushing all of us possibly to a level that you know where none of us were accustomed to yeah and so but yeah in the interest of i think efficiency uh we talked about it a little bit um i equated to what is happening in the aviation industry to what is happening in a in a or a similar transportation industry which is the uh, railway system and the fact that we're having so many derailments we just had another one what yesterday a canadian Okay. Railway yeah. in North Dakota, I think it was. Um, and we were talking about how when you have a train and you're pulling so many cars and that's the standard. And now we're going, you know what? Uh, if we got these new freight cars that you can stack two containers, one on top of the other, uh, we could do it. It's more efficient. And then it's like, oh, we'll just make the train a little longer. We'll add a couple more engines to it so that we need less engineers to pull along or push along more and more freight. And what's happening is these, these rail cars or these rail the trains are getting so long that when a heat sensor picks up a hot bearing on one of the cars, they can't just pull onto a side rail and have an engineer check it out or disconnect that car because they're so long that a lot of the original side rails that were designed into that railway system are not long enough. So they just got to keep pushing in an effort for more efficiency. And what's going to happen is eventually the system is is not designed to keep up with this this load that it has on it, and you're going to have these accidents happening, these derailments happen. Now derailments happen all the time, but it's a pushing a system to the brink that all it's going to take is a small thing that in the past was not a big deal to now really start to bring down the house of cards. And we're we were talking about that on the last show. And again, it's just something that's in the news. It's, it's, again, a topic that most of us aviators out on the line, when we're flying along, we want to talk about something. We're, that's it. It's the current events, right? It's the current events of the day. Um, and our system, whether that be pilots, flight attendants, rampers, mechanics, air traffic controllers, it's all being pushed to the brink of this post-pandemic recovery. We were walking in Charlotte the other day. And you couldn't walk in yeah. the terminal. I was like, and I think it was and they're you adding, that said and the fire adding, marshal should they're shut adding it down. <laughs> terminal space. Yeah. And they're adding, I believe they're adding a runway in Charlotte also. Yeah. It's like, where are they, where are they going to put all these people? I, whew, you know, yeah, it's, uh, 
Yeah, if you have any, uh, I don't want to bring this up. If you have any COVID fears out there, I don't know if I'd be hanging out in the Charlotte airport yeah, sometimes. Can you imagine? And not just Charlotte. I mean, so many airports. Yes, it's gotten um, very... They're just packed. Everyone, it's a spring break right now. Although DFW cracks me up, I have to say, because DFW claims that they have the air so filtered that don't worry about it because they keep it. And then they, they, I think there's signs here somewhere where they say they use, they use, oh, this as effervescent blue light to clean off the escalator handrails. Yes. So, you know, it's like, really? The UV light. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I try not to touch handrails. <laughs> but let's talk about your journey. You know, it was very interesting, and I and I really did enjoy uh, hanging out with you here on the past few days on the middle of this trip. You know, we got to share some stories together, and we were laughing so hard. Um, now, your journey began a little unconventionally. Yes, and when you were you were telling me a little bit about it, and I I, I didn't know this about you. Well, see, I would I, I had a convoluted childhood. We'll just leave it at that. If you want to call it dysfunctional, whatever it is, that's kind of what you would call it. Um, and I was, I don't want to say I was, I'm, I'm not a depressed person. The FA doesn't like to hear that, but you know, I was probably the depressed, whiny, know-it-all teenager. And quite literally, as uh, Tony pointed out in the uh, introduction, I'm moping around the house and my older brother, who at the time was my caretaker, uh, again, through just a convoluted family history that takes too long to deal with, but he just goes, Hey, why don't you go out and, uh, go take an intro flight, you know? And I go, I can't go fly an airplane. He goes, well, why not? And I go, well, uh, they wear glasses. They don't let you fly airplanes. I mean, literally, I'm the snow at all kid, you know, 16 years old, barely 16. So he goes, he, and he literally goes, I will bet you the cost of your private pilot's license that you can go fly an airplane with glasses. So I literally am going to go disprove him. I get in my car, such as it was. And I go down to Renton Aviation in, in, in uh, the Seattle area, uh, south end of Lake Washington, for those of you unfamiliar. There's Lake Washington just east of Seattle, for those of you, again, that aren't up there. And I go down there. Sure enough, I go out in this. They, oh, yeah, you know, the guy takes me up. Flight instructor takes me up, do a couple of turns. And, you know, I wasn't too sure about it. I mean, if, if I had to, it, this may sound a little funny to some aviators out there, but I'd call myself a reluctant pilot. I wasn't like, woo, this is so much fun. I got to do this again. I was like, oh, okay. This is kind of cool. Pilot, that, that could be cool, you know. So we get, we get to talking about like, you know, what I'd have to do, what I'd have to study, you know, the course. You know, it's a Cessna pilot course. It's a part 141 school. Um, they're allowed to abbreviate some of the length of time for some of the ratings uh, for those of you, again, not familiar with yet another aspect of the FA and training and certification, all that kind of thing. Um, so I basically started taking flight lessons and I got through, you know, very reluctant pilot though. I, I remember my, <laughs> I came home the first day after doing my first set of stalls in the airplane and I was... You know, I, I walked around going those effing stalls. That's why I just tell my brother. You didn't just, like those stalls. I didn't, huh? I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I am not, you know, I don't know if, I don't know if it's a stigma that pilots are thrill seekers or whatever, but I'm like, I am not that guy. You're not a roller coaster kind of guy. I am not. Yeah. I'm, you know, let, let's keep the airplane within the limits. Let's uh, not do, do anything too silly, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, but, you know, I got through my private pilot license. 
and kind of literally on the wall going in and out of the flight school, they literally had, it's kind of like, I don't know if any of us remember from classes and they have either the alphabet across the top of the class or they have the number line. Mm -hmm. Well, they had the private pilot or the, I should say the commercial pilot course curriculum laid out. And then along that was the instrument course. I'm like, okay, so what do you have to do to do that? Well, you do this, you do this, you do this. I go, okay. So it's like I literally just started, you know, uh, taking those lessons. And my family at the time was less than enthusiastic. They were not going to, you know, people that uh, fly airplanes, that's just for fun. That's just a hobby. You know, you're not going to make a living or that's not serious. So they weren't going to help me pay for any of that. They'd helped me. I was in school to be an accountant at the time. And I just went, well, if they're not going to help me pay, then I'm going to have to either go to community college, which is cheaper because the airlines want college at the time. They wanted college. This is uh, 1983, 84, 85 timeframe. And uh, so I just started, uh, I got a, a job as a uh, alignment at an FBO, a fixed base operator, basically an airplane gas station for lack of a better description and uh, so i did that earn some money take some lessons till i ran out of money rinse and repeat rinse and repeat get through the instrument rating get through the commercial rating get through the flight instructor rating and uh then i got a job at the flying club that was actually next door to where i was uh pumping gas and uh that place was run like a used car lot (laughs) (laughs) to say the least because if you don't work for a regular flight school and i and i can't you know this again this is 30 something years ago of course so there's aviation academies i'm sure there's flight schools and then there's flying clubs and a flying club is uh more like a club so there may or may not be some instructors on staff uh to check the members out in the airplanes to keep people current whatnot and they probably will offer you can get your license whatnot of course and uh but it was kind of like you know if you wanted to teach in the 172 you had to go you had to go buy your two-hour checkout with the other instructors you know if you want to teach in the baron well you have to go pay for that if you want to go teach in the 210 well you have to go pay for that so it was just on and on and on and uh but that's that's what i did i just uh about almost uh almost two years as a flight instructor about 1100 hours of instruction and uh yeah uh i got my gold seal if anybody knows what a gold seal is got a gold seal talked about that one so 80 percent pass rate in two years and you have to be dumb enough to you have to take the advanced and instrument ground instructor written which is basically saying you're going to take the atp and instrument pilot written again Mm because that's basically what you do you know so kind of fun fa test and then uh yeah so then i just and then just Unfortunately, the the twin engine plane I picked because back the truck up, you know, you have to get multi-time if you want to move on the airlines. It's all about multi-time. Oh, I got to get my multi-time. Right. So I got checked out in the Baron. And the idiot owner of the Baron, about literally a month after I got checked out to fly the Baron, that guy refused to keep the engines uh, at the required uh, TBO time between overhaul. So, and I, I, I can still hear the mechanic and this guy arguing. He goes, he goes, damn it, Brad, 
I'm not going to be re- rebuild one more of your cylinders. You got to get the engine overhauled. So they had to take it off of charter flying. Mm. So, you know, the hope was that not only could I teach in the Baron, but then you get to go out on charters to get some multi-time. Yeah. So there goes that idea. But that was, that was almost another uh, uh, rating for me because it cost me about 1500 bucks to get checked out in the Baron. And now I couldn't, you know, the only, the only time I was going to get was as an instructor. Right. You know, so, but over time I managed to get, you know, almost 300 hours. So I was very, very, very fortunate that I managed to just get hired at West Air United Express in California. Um, I just started sending out applications and they, they interviewed me. Um, I also got interviewed at Air Midwest, but they didn't like me. They, I didn't get hired at Air Midwest. Now, now so. that's a good, just to... To ask you a couple questions about that, because that's a lot, I think, of our listeners, all, all 10 of our listeners. <laughs> they want to hear about, like, interviews and things. And now, granted, we understand, you know, back in the 90s, interview processes were different than they are today. The algorithms that we have today are just completely foreign to most of us that were going through in the 90s and the early 2000s to learn how to fly and get interviewed. But the interview that, let's talk about the differences between the two. Now, you said, eh, they didn't like me. That's probably why they didn't hire me. And an assumption, a feeling that you get. What was it about that interview that you think turned them the other way in not selecting you? Well, I think when I went in there, it was very antagonistic. At least that's what it felt like to me. They were very, uh, well, don't you know? Or, oh, well, we'll see if you can explain this or whatever. And I just remembered one of the questions uh, specifically. They At one point, they're showing me pictures of runway markings. And they show me a picture of a whole short line. And the guy goes, well, what's this? And I go, well, it's a whole short line. He goes, well, do you care to elaborate? And I'm all like, well you stop on this side of it. If you go past it, you're encroaching on the runway, but it's a hold short line. You, you hold short of it. And he goes, yes, but isn't there a certain distance you're supposed to stay away? And isn't there this and that and this and that? And half the stuff he was saying is not written down. Yeah, th- th- there is not. You know, you, you, you don't go, you, you, literally, you don't go past it. Yeah. It's called a hold line. You know, but again, he was trying to generate... Uh, I felt like he was trying to generate some. Now, this is also an interview uh, technique in some cases where they'll sit there. They want to see what happens if you get upset. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but it was it was kind of a constant uh, barrage. It, it just never stopped. Yeah. You know, no answer so was I, ever good enough. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so I was just like, and I walked out of that just going, you know what? As much as I'm probably not going to even get a job here, it's like, well, I wouldn't want to work here anyway. So what do you think of that? Yeah. Even though that attitude is not the best one to have when you're just starting out, you know, it's like, Hey, right. You know, but, um, yeah. And the other one, uh, so that was with air Midwest, right? Air Midwest. Yes. And so, but the other interview that you, you got where you finally got that job. Yes. Um, how, how did that interview differ? Well, it, they asked me, uh, how about I put this regular questions? And there was there was two or three people. It wasn't just one guy. Mm. And and it, it like they uh, always know the airplanes you're flying around in. Though that's one thing I would say when you go into an interview. If you say that you like I, I taught in Barons, mm-hmm. 
And I didn't even know this at the time, but the, one of the interviewers, uh, she used to work for Beechcraft as a, as a, as a salesperson or whatnot. So I'm, she's asking me about the Baron. She's asking me, and I, I think I vaguely remember about the fuel tanks. And I said, well, the Baron, we have a 55 Baron that has 110 gallons, you know, 55 gallons aside. But then our sales department had sold another Baron at one point, And they had actually asked me, because I had my you know, instructor ratings, of course. So they said, hey, would you mind checking out the customer in this Baron? But it had a different fuel tank set up. So I got to sit there and go, well, this, this, the, 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 another version has like four, four tanks, you know, in this setup and this setup and this setup. And, and I think it impressed, uh, the interview person, uh-huh. uh, you know, it's like, oh, okay. So yeah, if there's advice I would give, if you walk into an interview saying that you flew whatever you flew, you might want to make sure you know something about it or at least yeah. be able to articulate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, so. and I can remember that on one of my interviews, actually, uh, with uh, what we call Sandpiper on the show. Um, they asked me on the first day HR portion of the interview, um, oh, I see you have in your logbook, uh, you flew, a, whatever it was, a PA-28 something something. It was, a, a, I think it was the, the Seminole. And could you draw the uh, landing gear system on the on the whiteboard for me? I was like, oh, yeah, sure. So I went up there and as an instructor, you know, but I didn't instruct on the Seminole. I instructed on primarily Cessna 172s and we had, I think we had a, uh, an arrow two or whatever as our complex. But um, yeah, so I got up there and I'm drawing the landing gear system from my memory of when I was in, in training for, for that. And she's like, well, okay, looks about right. You know, they just want to see that you can do it now. Did this interviewer know exactly what the landing gear system of a Seminole looked like? It's questionable. But the fact that I can get up there with some kind of confidence and not hesitate, I think that's really like, like you, you knew like intricate details of the different variants. All those things are impressive because it shows the interviewer that you are prepared. Right. And that really it took the, the job the day, seriously. Yeah. yeah you're, you weren't just going, yeah. well, you know. Not really where I want to work, but uh, it's good practice to be in the interview, I guess. You know, that's so. how it was at Northwest Airlines. But I digress. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Which we're going to get to. We're yeah, going to get to. Yeah. So you ended up uh, flying at a regional carrier in what was that? Ninety. Uh, nineteen. Uh, nineteen eighty nine. Oh, eighty nine. Nineteen eighty nine. Okay. And so- West Air. West Air United Express. Back in the heady days when the planes had propellers, y'all remember that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, turboprops scared the hell out of me. That's another so. side note. But uh, so you're here, you were, you were flying a Bondurania first, and that is pretty intimidating. What, how many people does that hold? Well, it holds, we had two versions. We had a 15 and a 19 seat Bondurani. And so that was a non-flight attendant. Non-flight attendant and not pressurized. And non-pressurized. And not to uh, ruffle the feathers of whoever I might ruffle, but it was teasingly called the Mexican King Air. <laughs> Bandarante, yeah. <laughs> because it's not pressurized, and it, it, it makes people chuckle when you uh, say, when you put the gear down, your pant legs would start flapping from the air coming up through the bottom of the airplane. Oh, really? Because, yeah. <laughs> so... Always, and it was always a fun ride because we only went to about 8,000 feet, you know, because we're on pressurized, of course. And we're going into LAX, so we're going to Fresno, LA. So imagine yeah. imagine going to LA and you're trying to descend. Now, this is in the days, too, before we had the RNAV arrivals and that kind of thing. Although, 
I don't think uh, non-turbojet airplanes have to do our nav arrivals and even into a place like LAX. But having said that, you know, we're limited to a thousand feet a minute climb and descent, you know, because we just can't, you can't. It just doesn't do it. Yeah. And then think about the Santa Ana winds in the wintertime over the Southern California mountains. Yeah. You know, we used to call it the shake and bake route coming from Fresno to LA. So, because you're, you get your butt kick going over the mountains, descend into LA and it's like 90 degrees because of the Santa Ana's. It's just like, yeah. Fun times. Yeah. Best, best forward <laughs> speed, please. Till a uh, two mile final. <laughs> That's it. That's what we did. You know, there you are yeah. screaming down. And meanwhile, you're some, uh, jet airplane behind you is like, God, Damn, these yep. guys. That's, what, <laughs> That's some MD-80 yep. captain thing. These damn Actually, <laughs> <laughs> well, see, now West Air also had, we had Shorts Brothers airplanes, the Shorts 360s. I never flew that. But, uh, you know, that was a giant boxy airplane for those of you unfamiliar, giant turbo uh, turboprop. I believe it held 55 passengers, but don't quote me on that. Anyway, we were going into San Fran one time, and United's in front of us, and we're behind United. And the tower goes, you know, United follow, uh, you know, United Express uh, shorts. And he goes, you got him in sight. And the United goes, well, I had him just a second ago, but I, he must have pulled off into a trailer park somewhere. Because the, the, the joke was the shorts brothers look like a giant Winnebago with wings. Yeah, it did. It so like this United box. guy just says that. And I'm just going to go, oh my God, you know. <laughs> There's always a comedian. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So. so how long did you fly that? Um, I flew the Bonnerani for just about a year, and then I upgraded on the Jetstream. And and another humble recommendation, which I'll possibly elaborate on later in this interview, but um, when I upgraded to the Jetstream, I went from right seat banded to the left seat of the Jetstream, airplane I'd never flown before. Mm-hmm. So note to kiddies, if you... I'm not saying they were all a bunch of heroes. You you can do anything you put your mind to, but it is a pain in the ass to both upgrade and learn a new airplane at the same time. Yeah, it is a challenge, you know. And but that's what I did, and that check ride was kind of a nightmare, and not from the standpoint that I was having issues, but um, the uh, designated examiner for Wester was uh, unavailable. So we had to go with an FAA designee, like an actual FAA guy. And my check ride was just under four hours long to get through a type ride. Yeah. And what was going on was the FAA guy, if you look at the, they used to call it the pilot training syllabus. Now we're, and I just, I actually keep my CFI current and they're going to a new, they're, they're going to a new, uh, and I'm just drawing a blank now what it's called, but it, they're changing the PTS. Yes. So it used to be called the practical test standards. Right. Now it's going to be called yes, I something talked about else. It, but I forget. Yeah, <laughs> new, it's a uh, something yeah. else standard. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, this guy was making me do every single listed maneuver separately. So if it said, as an example, you know, demonstrate, you know, normal airport pattern, he'd make you fly the pattern and land. You know, no approach, no single engine approach. No non-ILS approach. And then, okay, now you got to do an ILS. Now you got to do a single-engine ILS. Now you got to do a VOR. Now you got to do a single-engine NDB. Now you got to do a, you know, it's just on and on and on. So, but that was, uh, so on top of all, like I just said about, you know, trying to learn a new airplane and be the captain of it, and then I ran into this kind of a check ride. Just, you know. Yeah, yeah right. and, and it's interesting because, 
You know, if uh, if you've come up through the aviation training environment in the last probably 10 years, you've probably gone through, if you've done the civilian route, you go to a flight school or a flight farm and you get all your <laughs> flight farm. <laughs> you know, these schools like uh, like Embry-Riddle and some of these are like ATP and they're basically flight farms. And, you know, they they're from day 1, they're training you not to be a, a GA pilot per se. They're training you to be an airline pilot from day 1. Right. The schedule, the training, it's all well, designed. Well, let's be real, something like ATP, they're just trying to get your ATP quickly and efficiently. That's it. They're not you should already know how to do that when you walk in the door. You're just using them to not have to go through an arduous, you know. Right. Anyway. So when you come out of these kind of flight farms, as I call them, uh, you're, you go <laughs> right into, say, a regional uh, airline. You know, you get hired on a regional airline. And you should be equipped to pass the training. But it wasn't like that back in the day. Uh, we didn't even have simulators. I mean, especially when you're on a turboprop, you were taking your check ride in the actual aircraft, oh, yes. demonstrating everything oh, yes. out there. And they usually, because the planes were flying during the day, during yes. scheduled operations. So you had to go out and at some obscure airport out there or over some practice area with an examiner in the left seat. And you're sitting there, a new hire or new on the airplane or vice versa, you in the left seat and the examiner in the right seat. And you're demonstrating all the stuff that we now do 100% in the simulator. Yes. In the actual aircraft. Yes. And, and that, I've always found that really interesting. Now, earlier you mentioned that, you know, that what they call it now, the PTS and the, as a CFI, an active CFI. It's now called the ACS. That's right. Yes. That's yeah. Right. So from PTS, the transition started in June 15th of 2016. The ACS adds task-specific knowledge and risk management elements to each of the PTS areas of operation and task. The result is an integrated presentation of specific knowledge, risk management, there's the key, and skill elements for each task. Now, the risk management portion, we've talked about this on previous uh, episodes, we are adding the human factor into passing a certification. Uh, Before, it was, hey, if you can perform the tasks as outlined in the practical test standard, and you can command the aircraft as such, whether or not you're an asshole... (laughs) <laughs> or belong mentally stable uh, belong behind the controls of an aircraft was not tested and the acs now incorporates, incorporates. those kind of evaluations and we talked about too scenario-based training is also taking us down the same kind of road you know they're trying to trying to integrate all these elements right into kind of a cohesive uh theoretical learning process i guess yeah to uh so here you um, were you you upgrade. You're you're taking your check ride in the aircraft, yes. not in a simulator, yes. for four hours. Yes, that's yes. a lot of fuel. Yes, and we had to stop for fuel. And yeah, because <laughs> because the guy with me, because they take two of us. Uh huh. And normally you would just you usually just go out. The other guy would probably fly for an hour and then switch seats. You fly for an hour with the instructor dude, and then you're done. But in this case, they did me, so to speak, and then. We had to stop for fuel, and then my I had to sit in the back of the airplane for about another three and a half hours so my friend could do his check ride also. Yeah. So we literally spent the entire night doing a check ride for two people, wow. and just because you know the normal examiner guy was not available, and but that's that's what can happen out there. You, you just uh, yeah, you know it's uh. That happens at the airline too, though. Sometimes you show up for your recurrent or whatever, or maybe this is your 
you know, you're new at an airline and you've gone through your training and you show up for your loft scenario or your whatever your maneuvers validation, whatever they call it at your airline. And all of a sudden you go, hi, I'm with the FAA and I'll be observing your check ride today. <laughs> you're like, oh shit, as if there was not enough pressure. Now I got to have this knucklehead out there in a Hawaiian shirt. Yep. Judging and evaluating in my every move. And they're there not just to judge and evaluate. Oh, they're there you. to help. They're there to help. If it's anything I can do to help. They're also yes. there to evaluate your instructor too. So if that's any consolation. Yes. So, so you survived. I survived. Apparently. You survived. You got your fourth stripe. Yep. And now you were Life was around. good. Life was good yeah. for about a year and a half. <laughs> Life was good for about a year and a half. And then this would have been early 90s. Economy starting to falter a bit. Airlines having difficulties. Uh, we start furloughing, and Dave gets kicked out of his. Uh, Dave gets kicked out of his uh, captain seat. In fact, I'm just remembering a story. Or displaced. Let's let's not mince words. Because kicked out. Okay, I'm thinking. Out. What did you do? I was kicked out. What did you do? I was kicked out. I'm just rat bastards. I was kicked out. No. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, this is no exaggeration. So. I've just found out that I am in, you know, we, we pilots, we, we can see a furlough coming, we can see a downsizing coming, whatever it is. And at least for me, you kind of pretend it's not going to happen. Yeah. So you finally get the word and I got the word on, oh, I, if I can't, I, I, it was either my birthday or the day before my birthday. Right. This is no lie. So I, I said, okay, I'm getting displaced. Damn it. So we're flying and then. That night on layover, my wife calls me and our house has been robbed. Our first house we lived in, we've, we've been robbed. We've been cleaned out stem to stern. Now we had next to nothing at the time. And, but yeah, we were completely cleaned out, uh-huh. you know, completely robbed. I'm like, oh, that's great. Okay. Blah, blah, blah. Flying into LAX. First, first, first flight out of Fresno in the morning. So I'm on, on final. And both of my hydraulic gauges in the, in the jet stream, what happened was we go to extend the flaps from mid flaps to full flaps. I can't remember what all the numbers are these days. But in the jet stream, if the flaps stop and then retract to the previous level, it's because of a hydraulic pressure issue. They, they auto-correct themselves to okay. the least drag where they were. So we go to put the flaps down. Flaps don't work. And I'm like, oh, that's unusual. And we look down at the hydraulic gauge, and both of my hydraulic gauges are zero. Zero, no hydraulic pressure. And we just put the gear out. We were going to go to full flaps. The flaps retracted. And it's like, really? (laughs) So is it the gauge? Is it, we did our checklist, and we decided we had a hydraulic problem. Because we didn't have we didn't we didn't have any hydraulic pressure, so I elected to leave the gear out. We go around in LAX, have to come back around. I, I want them to roll the fire trucks because, you know, God forbid, we can't stop. Right. You know, won't stop. We wind up in the grass, and I didn't call the trucks. I'm certainly, and then we had to go around with the gear out, so I didn't want to retract the gear. You know, because yeah. yeah. So we come back around, land, and and it was real because we stopped. And the guy goes, you know, ground goes, ground control goes, can you guys taxi clear? And I go, okay. And I go to turn, nose gear won't turn. I, I got nothing. Not, yeah. And the plane, the plane starts rolling 
and the brake pedals, I got nothing. So I had to, I had to reach down and get the emergency brake again to stop the plane. I go, Hey, got to come tow us. <laughs> so all that happened, house robbed, getting displaced and a hydraulic emergency in a span of less than 24 hours. The trifecta know? of yep. bad. Gotta love bad. it. You know? Yeah. So anyway, that, that uh, displaced me out to the Brasilia. So I had to be a Brasilia first officer for uh, several years at West Air. Yeah. Uh, well, while our friends at, uh, see, you guys call us, what, what do you, what do you guys call in the commuter airline? The, uh, oh, over at, uh, Sandpiper. To, yeah. So one of the wholly owned, so, so, yeah. so Sandpiper two comes and eats Sandpiper that I was working for, you know, and they basically, they basically halved our seniority list. You were working for one of the primary commuter yeah. airlines that was rolled into this wholly owned environment yes. with, and it was what, six, I think, uh, certificates that were rolled into they, one. They, at that time they had, yeah, I believe they had six different, oh, counting, yeah. counting, uh, the airline I was at, I think they had six different companies. There's Great Lakes, I think. Was, was Great Lakes in there? I think so. And then. Us. What, what would they just bought us? And. Uh, <laughs> so what, so you were a part of the and so so am I allowed to say who the because they're a current company still so I don't know if I'm allowed to say what they're so this uh, larger I don't even know yeah I guess they were larger uh, regional airline bought us okay, okay. yeah because we were having issues uh, to sum it up and when I say they have the seniority list they basically furloughed half our pilots in the name of downsizing that's how I wound up going back to the Brasilia Okay. And then they did the fun thing where they brought their pilots in at some of our old crew bases and started flying our old routes oh, among other things. I'm sure that was fun. And then they basically told our union to pound sand as far as scope claws. Oh, yeah. Well, you, that's what courts are for is <laughs> was kind of their stance. And it, it went on like that for uh, a while. But then... Uh, they started getting healthy again, started, and then, and then it's not so much that they were getting healthy, but the uh, this would have been in the in mid to late 90s now, uh, 1996 or so. Uh, the airlines finally started hiring, and, and, and uh, throughout the mid-90s, if you were a non-civilian, I should say a non-military uh, pilot, um, it was very difficult to get an airline job to get an get an airline interview, let alone an airline job. Right, and there was like what I'm getting at. There's no movement. There's you're just you know there's you just weren't going anywhere. But then ultimately the airlines finally started hiring, so there was some movement. So I actually got back to my captain seat, and so I started prepping for interviews because it's like well. You know, originally when this when this whole circus started, they said, "Oh, you know what? You're going to be you'll be a regional pilot for a year, year and a half tops, and you get your United interview, and off you go." I was told the same thing, and I was like, "It's like, well, you know, that only took about eight and a half years to get okay, but okay, you know, yeah. whatever." So this outfit, because I can say because they're gone now, outfit called Renoir wants to uh, interview me. And I just sent out a bunch of resumes. I didn't know anybody at Reno. I didn't know anybody anywhere. Uh, so I, I, I called it my resume bar. If every six months, you just you just send out new resume requests, barf out a bunch of resumes, and then see everywhere. what see what see what sticks on the wall. Yeah, the, the Italian way of interviewing for an airline: just hey. throw a bunch of stuff out there and see what sticks. That's you know. I... So Reno Air interviews me, or they would they want to interview me, 
And they had this, they already had a reputation. Uh, one or two of our ex Czech airmen at the airline I worked at had failed uh, the Reno Air Ground School. Oh. And they were, wow. they had a very notorious training reputation. Uh, very, very hard, very difficult. So here I am. I just got my captain seat back. And I'm like, believe it or not, now here's a jet job. Oh, it's a jet job. I can go fly a jet. You know, but it's like, I did not want this job. I did not want to work for anywhere because I'm thinking things like, you know, if I go there, I give up my, I just got my captain seat back. I can get some more PIC time and piloting command time for those you're not, you know, with the verbiage. And I did not want to go there. So I go, okay, I'm going to use Renoir as a way to practice because I may have to talk to United one day. I may have to talk to Northwest. And this is a way for me to. Yeah. So I, I go, you know what? I'm going to walk in there like I own the place, but I'm not going to prepare. You know, I'm not oh, wow. going I'm not, I'm not to sit there and do, okay, I'm going to get. Uh, they used to have this outfit called FAPA, the Future Aviation Pilots of America. I, don't, I think the guy did a different. Anyway. You can get all sorts of prep stuff yeah, out there. Prep when material and mock but I said, you know yeah. what? I'm gonna I'm gonna walk in there and I'm just gonna go through the interview as far as I get, and I'm gonna see what I'm not good at. You know, did I do the interview well? Did I not know the written test? Did I not know the whatever? Yeah. And Reno Era had a basically had to walk in the door and take an ATP written. That was their first thing, and they literally sat you down. They go, you take this written, and they graded it right there. If you didn't pass that test, go home. Yeah. On the spot. So I got through the test and I was like, oh crap. Okay. So now I got to go talk to the chief pilot. So they send you to the chief pilot. And I distinctly remember, <laughs> he goes, so Dave, uh, had a couple of you West air guys through here. And I'm like, oh God, you know? And he goes, uh, what hydraulic system is the, uh, jet stream entry door on, you know, the hydraulic lift on the door, what hydraulic system is it on? And I go, it's not on any hydraulic system. It's like the it's like the the jack in the back of a hatchback car. It's a it's a it's a air it's a air shock thing, whatever the hell you call that. Is it it's self contained? It doesn't do anything. He goes, no, no, no. Your other guys told me that da 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 da. It's on it's on the on the B hydraulic system or whatever you said. And I go, no, no, it's not. It's just it's a it's a it does it's it on its own. Yeah. And, and so I'm actually telling this guy that you know so you shouldn't go. Oh God, what am I doing? You know. So I go through the interview, end of the day, they want me to go back for the sim. Okay. I'm like, I'm like, oh fuck. Sorry, can I say that on the podcast? So I'm yeah. just like, there's just no, there's, I just really. <laughs> so then as luck would have it, I live in Long Beach. They're using flight safety in Long Beach at the Long Beach airport. Um, it's literally like a 15 minute drive from my house. So there I am. So now they told me, they told me. Business casual, you're in your suit. You know, we go to interview. Of course, you're in your suit and everything. Business casual for the sim. That that's all of it. You know, you don't have to wear a suit. So circumstances were such that my car broke down. Actually, I should say my wife's car broke down. She had to take my car. I had my motorcycle. And what day does it pick? The, the two days a year rains in SoCal is the day I have to do the sim. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. I I drive to Long Beach on my motorcycle, full rain gear, suit, helmet, whatever. Get to the front front of flight safety. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to run up on the porch. I'm going to peel off all my crap. I'm going to throw it in the corner. 
and try to walk in there like a normal person, even though I'm not in a car. So I, it's, and it is, it's just pouring rain. So I get up on the porch and this guy's up there and he's, he's, he's smoking a pipe. He's got his pipe out, you know, and this old guy. So I'm starting to take my shit off and stuff. And he goes, Oh, Hey, what you doing? I said, Oh, I'm, I'm here for a, for an airline interview. And he goes, Oh, he goes, Oh, you doing the Reno air interview? And I go, well, yeah, you know, da, da, da. And he goes, uh, Joe Dye, director of operations, Reno air. <laughs> <laughs> and I am just a mess. I am just like, seriously, you yeah. know? So I walk in the door, I'm like, great, you know, and walk around the corner and there's the other three or four victims there. Full suits, suits and ties. Wow. I am in Dockers, and I, I decided to wear, like, my leather pilot jacket and a polo shirt. Nice. That's, that's what I'm wearing. It's and, the, and these guys are all in suits. Right. And I'm just like... Well, they came straight from the interview. I'm just like, oh, my God, are you <laughs> kidding me? So, this other guy comes around the corner, though, and he's got a Hawaiian shirt, jeans, okay. and a pilot leather jacket on. And he goes, are you Buck Miller? And I'm like, maybe. <laughs> no, I didn't say that, but I said, yeah. He goes, you're supposed to be here two hours ago. Didn't they call you? And I go, no, nobody's. I was like, no, nobody's called me. And he, not kidding, he whips out his phone. He calls the, apparently the secretary up at, up at Reno and he goes, hey, blah, 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 blah. You didn't? Oh. He goes, come on, we got to go. You know, so <laughs> I, I literally have that much time to go, okay, I guess we're going to go fly the MD-80 sim now. And that's what we did. We went in and did the whole uh, MD-80 uh, uh, profile, interview profile yeah. from nothing, you know, and uh, yeah, it was interesting, but it was, I got through it, you know, yeah. and, and somehow I got hired at Reno and that's what happened. There so you go. And how long Reno. were you at Reno? I was at Reno for... 96 to late 98 was that three years two and a half years three years years. and you upgraded relatively quickly nope never never upgraded got within 12 numbers got within 12 numbers numbers of upgrade well still that's pretty for three years to almost hold captain within three years it was at, at reno they were suffering in a mini sort of way what the regionals are suffering now they were losing pilots so fast that they couldn't keep anybody on board. Cause I walked in the door. Uh, once I got through training, I was mid, uh, mid seniority line holder. Uh, my first month, I, I didn't sit a single day of reserve at nice. Reno. No, yeah. I mean, it was just like, and I, I think I was like the number three or four FO at, uh, in Las Vegas yeah. before the, uh, legacy, the big legacy ate us, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we've heard about the 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 Reno Air acquisition uh, from Legacy Airlines. Um, we've had some friends of both of ours, yes, uh, be on the podcast yep. before. Uh, Captain Hans and yep. Captain Dave uh, L. Letourneau. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, is a great guy. Good he um, is good. Yeah. So it, Reno Air had quite a bit of history, and what I liked about hearing about the adventures at Reno Air is it seemed like. And I think it's not just because it was a kind of a small airline flying MD-80s around California and whatnot, but it was also at a time in the 90s where cell phones weren't around, at least not with they cameras. They were barely around. They were like flip phones and Nokias and, and you know, Motorola. I didn't even get a cell phone until I had to sit reserve at American. You uh, had to sit reserve? Yep. At Legacy? At Legacy. Had to sit reserve at Legacy right after the Reno buyout. Yeah. And 
that is the one and only reason I even got a cell phone. So, because all my, all the, like my, my, uh, Renoir buddies and the crash pad, they all had these, I still remember the Motorola flip phone. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I was like, pull the antenna getting, up. I'm yeah. like, as you and I've joked about, not going to do it. Not going to do it. I'm not, not, not going to get sucked in. Not going to get, not going to pay for it. Not going to pay see, for but, it. But it made working. And it wasn't just, I, I, I was working for a big box wholesale retailer. I can say it, Costco. I used to work for Costco. Did that for a decade, right well, out of high I school. I thought about Paid working for through. Costco many times. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a great job, great money. But back then, you know, you could you go and you after work, you clock out and go throw throw down a couple beers in the back of your your boss's uh you know vintage Mustang, and then go hang out and go to somebody's party and stuff, and and it, everybody just had more fun, and yes. it was nobody was offended by by every little move and triggered and so there was no, there was no proof triggering there was no proof there was no proof because it was there's nothing on camera yeah but you didn't need the proof because you just it yeah, just was a different was time like, different mentality but was, people had more fun at work and now it's just so serious why so serious well no it's it's uh it's uh it's uh yeah serious uh emotionless you're not allowed to you know, you, there will be no laughing. If we will not, not tolerate laughing. If you have not you read know. the book, nineteen. In fact, in fact, if you do what I do occasionally, <laughs> and go because I'll hear the flight attendants back there laughing, I'll go, "Hey, there's no laughing." <laughs> and those they'll get all serious, like, "Oh," and I'm like, "I'm kidding about the laughing." You know, it's just like, "Come on," you know, you it's kid. Just, it's like oh there's my no kidding. God, you guys are just so anyway. So but. you had a lot of a lot of good times. Yes. At Reno. Now is yes. there any event at that former airline? Do you do you want me to tell you about an event at Reno or if I you're willing to you. share, well, I'm willing to listen. <laughs> well, there I am. Okay, so we're down on our Tijuana layover. Now we did not lay over Tijuana, but we laid over in San Diego. Oh yes. But we habitually either walked across the border or took the trolley and or walked across the border. We walked across the border. Oh, yeah. And we went to this bar. Went to these bars. But this one bar, I distinctly remember. The little bit of it I do remember. Uh, it was a multi-story bar with a curly Q slide from the third floor to the first floor. And about every 15 minutes, they would pump smoke into the place and you'd ride the slide down to the bottom. So that's the kind of night we were having, just painting the picture. It's on a layover. Yes. Okay. We're drinking, carrying on, da 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 now. Allegedly. Now. <laughs> we we here, we pilots, are not supposed to drink anything eight hours prior to flying, as we're possibly all well the aware. The way it used to be, yes. No, that's that's still the rule. No. Nope. It's eight hours. Yeah, I'm no, don't sit there and shake your head at me because there's Changed. there's more now, okay, no. <laughs> I know I'm and I'm gonna explain the change if you'd let me. Yes, yes, please. Yeah. Sorry. So you can have drink, can have drinking, can have a drink eight hours before flight, but you cannot also have more than 0.04% alcohol in your bloodstream, whether or not you stop drinking eight hours prior. So I believe we're slightly more restrictive. Yeah, point, legacy is, 0.02. You know. But there's a, there's a slight change, and I don't know if it's uh, on the FAA level or on the 121 yeah, level, I, but I believe now they changed it. It used to be eight hours, what we used to call bottle to throttle, which bottle is throat, a yeah. bottle, which is a borrowed military term. Yep. It's changed. Eight hours free from all effects of alcohol. Right. Meaning eight hours prior to your flight, you need to be able to blow a 0.00. 
free from all effects of alcohol. It's no longer, I had a beer eight hours well, ago. I thought, no, legal. wait a minute. I thought it was the 0.04. Isn't That's the FAA legal limit. Okay. Meaning, you can't... I thought legacy was 0.02, though. They are. Okay. So, there, there are legal limits. But if you blow a 0.01 at the end of your shift, okay. which is when they normally do yeah. randoms... Which is kind of weird. If they I was calcul- trying to they catch do people, the I'd be doing it randomly. We'll get to that, right? <laughs> so there, there, there's even if you blow if you blow anything but a point zero zero at the end of your shift, you are under administrative leave, suspended until yep. further notice. Um, so eight hours bottle of throttle no longer. Yeah, maybe in the legal sense, but there's verbiage in there. You got to be careful. It's eight hours free from all effects of alcohol, meaning you got to be a point zero zero eight hours prior to your trip. Now, a lawyer could come and debate this. It used to be. Yeah, I had a drink. I'm good for eight hours. I know that some airlines, I believe Alaska comes to mind, they have they had at least, I don't know if they still do, a twelve midnight rule. So if you're flying at ten PM on Monday, you could not have a drink after midnight on Sunday because it was the same calendar day. You can't if you're can't do it. And and other airlines have other rules where it's like a twenty four hour thing. Right. So they're a lot more restrictive. Well, one legacy airline went at one point, you may you probably know this, but uh, no drinking on layovers. They just said you weren't allowed to. Oh, really? When did this happen? This was uh, probably about the same time right when I was at Reno Air, or maybe even before. It was at least mid-90s, maybe even earlier than that. But Legacy Legacy Airline X said no drinking on layovers. They just said you're oh, not allowed to. Done. So Too many they, problems. You know, but yeah. uh, anyway, to get back to my story, so there I was. Now, I dutifully stopped consumption eight hours prior i'm a, i'm i'm a dork i follow this rule religiously you know and but it is now twelve thirty a.m <laughs> we have a five something sign in <laughs> okay we're laying on the trolley going back to our hotel in san diego and all I can see is our one flight attendant. He's laying there on this bench going, it sucks to be us. So we're, we're having that kind of a night. Mm. So we get back. Now we're going to go fly. We're going to go San Diego back to Reno. And I'm, I'm feeling adequate. I would never fly if I didn't feel adequate, but I am marginally adequate. <laughs> the effects of dehydration and lack of sleep. Yes, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> so we fly up to Reno. Who is standing on the jetway for yours truly for the random alcohol uh, breathalyzer test? Mm -hmm. The PP lady, as we affectionately called her at Reno. And so there I go. And I'm like, okay, well, this is going to (laughs) suck. So go in there and we do have to do the urine test and then we do the breathalyzer test so i'm don't they make you have to blow it till you can't breathe or whatever right. and i blow a big fat zero and i'm not even kidding based on the way that i felt i almost went no way <laughs> <laughs> i think it's broken that, that almost came out of my mouth yeah based on the way that i kind of felt but so a note to all of you fun time seekers out there in the aviation world. Yeah. You know, 
Well, you know, I don't, I don't think it's much of a problem that much anymore. It's not. No, I don't. I don't you know, I well, you, know, you you say that, but, but I'll tell you what: you, you run into the occasional uh, hymns person, the the human interface, the the human substance abuse people, the yeah. human intervention. Um, yeah, they they Survey. occasionally tell you a different story. They'll tell you that yeah. there there's more than you might want to think about out there, kind of having issues. Yeah, and I've you had know. you know, it's interesting you say that. I've had both the director of hymns for uh, Sandpiper on the show. Um, I've also had um, people that have participated in the HIMSS program. Um, I, I'll put a link in the show notes of this episode, um, but I did have someone who went through it. Um, you're never a recovering alcoholic. You're, you're always an alcoholic. Um, it, drugs and alcohol are a human condition, and it is an illness. And if you need help, I will have a link in the show notes uh, for HIMSS. Uh, definitely an issue that... You know, it, it's there for everyone, but when a pilot shows signs of alcohol abuse or having an, a problem and they need help, it is very, it's not hard to find. It's, it's out there. We have programs like the HIMSS program. Um, and, you know, as we're sitting here talking about this, it's a pretty serious thing, um, but we joke around about, you know, some of the past experiences we've had, we've all, we've all had them, those of us that have been on the line now for, for multiple decades, where back in the day, we used to have a lot more fun, and now it's all serious. And, and there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. And I think it's because there's so much more transparency now, and everyone's kind of out to protect themselves because everyone's got a movie studio and cameras and internet and every tweet what? or message you've ever sent is always And generally recorded. speaking, wouldn't I mean, liability. I mean, the first... The first word out of everybody's mouth is liability. Right. Like, what's our liability? You know? Yeah. So, I think we're all, for very whatever you think you're liable for, everyone's running scared. You know, what's what's going to be my liability? And, you know, that's sucked the fun out of life somewhat, I guess, give but, or take. You, you know, know, but. Thank you for sharing that, your experiences in the past. We'll be right back right after a brief message from our sponsor. And ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Well, we've been talking to Captain Dave Buckmiller about his adventures uh, early on in his career, uh, flying for some pretty exciting airline <laughs> companies and dealing with some nightmare interviews and training. But uh, nightmare is a strong word, but the, we all have experiences. Showing you know, up, and- you know, with rain, with drenched in 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 rain and. <laughs> Meeting the the director of operations was it? Yes. Yeah. Just, like, just like really. Um, hi, I'm your. And, your and about the worst possible presentation state you could probably be in. You know, as far as if you're trying to get a job or whatnot. Yeah. And and while we were on this quick break here, um, uh, we got a notification on the phone here. Here we are on a layover in the middle of a, a four day sequence, and our flight's delayed. So this time Shocker. that we have set aside to record a little interview here on the layover hotel, we just now have suddenly more time. So, so that's good. That is good, I think. <laughs> For so, now, let's yeah. see what happens yeah. with this delay. Now, your your story goes on um, with with Reno Air, and and anybody that's in the industry can kind of put the pieces together. But Reno Air was bought out. Yes, Reno Air was absorbed. By Legacy X, big, you know, big, uh, 
uh, <laughs> big legacy airline. Yeah. Yes. Big legacy airline. Yeah. And we didn't have much say so in the matter. It just kind of happened. And the seniority integration, we can always, you know, every, um, legacy X has also absorbed other legacy airlines subsequent to RenoAir and the seniority integrations have all been contentious to say the least. Um, as a lot of you may or may not know, seniority is everything in the airline world in terms of your quality of life, what you fly, where you fly, where you're based. Seniority dictates all. So most pilots get very, uh, I would say just sort of combative if you get them going about seniority, depending on what your views are, like how it should be handled when there's mergers, that kind of thing. Uh, but yes, yeah, so Reno was bought by Legacy X. And we were summarily and unceremoniously stapled to the very bottom of the seniority list at the time of the acquisition. And then the union wanted to make sure that they accounted for new hire seniority, like a new hire training, I believe, that they said this this was for. So they added an additional 180 days. So uh, Reno was acquired in November of the... They decided that they actually took control, I believe, late October of 98. And then they go, so, but no, 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 your seniority for all you guys is February of 99. Because they wanted to add those 180 days on to the end of the wow. control date. to Because you're, you're still new hires, as far as they're concerned. Oh. So, now, you can make the argument that, you know, well, hey, Reno Air is a two-bit airline. And... 300, I can't remember, but we had 300, 330 pilots, something like that. We weren't huge. And at the time, Legacy X had been hired, had just started hiring again. They'd been hiring lots of pilots. And it could be argued that, hey, even if we gave you guys date of hire, it's not going to affect your status at all because, you know, it's just not going to. And, but then I, uh, I would counter that with like, well, and this, and I'm not trying to say I knew everything, but this is exactly what happened. I say, that's all fine until you guys merge with another airline with a bunch of pilots that have a mid 1990 seniority date, just like us, which is exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. And now it does matter, you know? So am I saying that there should be absolute positive date of hire? Not really, because that's not really fair. Traditionally, it's usually date of hire with fences. So what they will do is they'll go, okay, so all you guys that are coming over, your seniority is going to be, like in my case, it would have been uh, April of 1996, but it's going to be five years until you can bid for whatever equipment, you know, to make it fair to the existing people at the existing legacy. You know, that's one way to do it. Um, or you can have what happened to all of us two or three times over now. Uh, you have an arbitrator just go, hey, well, you know what? You guys are here and you guys are there. And, oh, well, you know what? Well, you're still the same percentage. So we're just going to leave you there. Oh, sorry about the 2,000 numbers you just lost. But you're still the same percentage. So that's okay. Yeah, but this is usually a non-aviation person telling you that this is okay. Right. <laughs> is exactly uh Kind of, it happened to us a little more than it happened to, uh, am I allowed to say TWA because they're gone? They're gone. You know, Le yeah. Legacy, 
Legacy absorbed TWA at one point, and those guys got screwed over at least three times, you know, mm-hmm. for various judgments, arbitrations. Um, so again, uh, but backing up to my sad story, you know, we, we just got stapled, you know, at least in TWA's case, half of those guys got at least ratioed in. So they go, okay, they start at the top. Eight American guys, TWA guys, eight American guys, TWA guy. Oh, okay. They did that for like the, I believe the first half of their list. Mm-hmm. But then the bottom half was stapled at their, at their time of acquisition or whatever. And so, but anyway, getting off on a tangent again there. But yeah, so that's what happened is yeah. uh, legacy. I'm always curious about the, when an airline buys out another airline, mergers, acquisitions, uh, legacy is famous for having so many and most of the the big three have had plenty of of mergers and there's a huge generation of pilots i'd probably say 30 to 40 percent of the pilots out there at a 121 mainline carrier right now have not lived through a merger no you know they're new hires they have no clue and they can read about it they can hear about it they can hear the stories but until you've lived through it and that feeling of unknowing Right, the unknowing of of is how's this going to affect me? How's this going to affect the quality of my life? Um, how how am I going to? How's my career going to be? Or even internally, now? even internally. So merger's done, everything's done, right? And then the then the airline decides to go. Okay, well, you know that that base is that's kind of close to you guys. Well, we're going to chop that base in half now. We're going to we're oh, going to yeah. kick out half those pilots. So where do you think they're going to go? They're probably going to go come over to your house because it's the closest place. So you used to be able to fly to Hawaii two or three times a month. Now you can't even touch it. Right. Even though you're still a captain, you're still an FO, you're still in your equipment. That None of that's changed, but now you're flying red eyes yeah, instead of flying your, your daytime weekends percentage. off thing. Yeah. And really? Just okay, like you that. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's just... That's why, and that's why I told uh, any any up and coming pilots, get on a seniority list. If you if you really want to be an airline pilot, your number one job is to get on a seniority list. Yeah, because I mean, quite literally, the start of my journey. If I would have been hired at West Air three months before I did get hired, three months, I don't think I even would have been uh, displaced out of my captain seat. Wow. Just if I had three more months of seniority yeah. over the whole course of the whole, you know, the I mean, career. Yeah. it can just make that much of a difference. And it so. really can. And we, we interviewed uh, Mr. Greg Daigle, uh, retired Captain Greg Daigle, about what, four, four or five shows ago. Um, listening to his journey was simply amazing. Alex's dad, Alex is one of my co-hosts. And the title of that episode was something he said that I had not heard before, surprisingly. And he said, Seniority is not everything. It's the only thing. Oof. And yeah. in this career field, nothing could be more true. Um, you could be, your seniority could be off by one number. And the guy, one number more senior to you, by solely because of the seniority that that, that person may have, their career could have taken a huge turn that was a lot more lucrative than yours because the opportunities were there that yours were not. And that's what happens when you are in a seniority-based career. 
And when you have these mergers happening, how do you integrate? And every arbitrator is going to be yeah, a little fair? different. Right? What's fair? So there needs to be a, I think there needs to be a standard, maybe somehow like, hey, when, when these things happen, here's the formula. And it should be relatively fair, the standard. Well, now but, that, uh, you've maybe, you're, are you alluding to a national seniority list? I don't think a national seniority list is possible. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I, I think that would be the best thing, frankly. But you're exactly right. Right. I don't think the managements will ever let that happen. Right. Because that would give us pilots way too much power. Because if you start, you you start making me, you you start treating me badly. Well, I'll just go over to Legacy D and be a, be a captain. Right. You know. Right. And I'll have the power to do that. So that. That would actually force the airlines to be a little more, uh, <laughs> yeah, friendly uh, to their exactly group. right, right. You know, now the Teamsters unions are work very similarly. Like, let's say you're a, a plumber and and you're part of this national union, a Teamster union, and and you decide you're moving. So now you you go to the union and they go, okay, well, I got a job for you in this city, and this is what you were making back there. We're going to get you something pretty close to that over here and with your years of experience and everything. So we'll get you somewhere around your pay rate. That doesn't happen in our industry. A lot of people don't realize that, especially when they're, you know, flight instructing and they're just learning about this stuff as they go, like as I did. Um, and they don't realize that, no, that's not how it works. If, if I am not happy somewhere and I go, like, if I want to go tomorrow to say Delta, right, or United yep. or JetBlue. I got to start from the bottom. I'm a new hire. I'm yep. a year one pay as a new hire FO, and I got to start all over again. Yep. And that's part of the reason why so many legacy and mainline carriers today are having issues passing contracts, employee contracts for their pilot groups. It's because when you're at that level, you're not going to start over again. You're not going anywhere, no. right? If I decide, hey, they're going to pay me more over there, but I got to start all over again. I'm not going to do it. Now, at a regional level, it is, by design, a stepping stone. So there is somewhere up to go to with a different, you know, bigger equipment. Although today's current climate, as we've talked about, yes, you know, those guys are knocking down, they're knocking down legacy captain pay, frankly. Oh, yeah. Because your regional guy right now, they're, they're giving those guys a quarter million a year and $100,000, please come fly for us. It's pretty unbelievable, and it's so, not gonna it's not gonna last very long. Mark my words. Put it in the book. Put it in the put it in the red book. <laughs> it's not gonna last very long. But five more years at, at the most. Um, I would argue that the regional airline hub and spoke model will go away. I think that there will be some interesting um, acquisitions to where it'll be more than just a stepping stone. Now it'll be when you get hired, you start at the regional scale and move forward. So there's so much we could sit here and debate and talk about, um, but let's get back to your journey. Yes, yes, yes. You're, you're, here you are, you've been blended into legacy airlines. Give or take. And you're flying the same equipment? Yes. I, I decided to stay in the MD-80 because it was based in LA and a legacy was just getting 737s at that time. So I didn't really... I can't honestly remember if the 727 was just going away. Yes, I've been here that long. Um, so I wasn't 100% sure I needed to go to a different piece of equipment. And 
I probably chose the path of least resistance. Um, I've never had the urge to do, go fly the big iron, you know, go fly the wide, wide body long haul, you know, eight, 10, 15 hours in an airplane. I'm just not sure that that's, that's what I want to do. I mean, I'm not sure that's what I want to do, <laughs> even though, I mean, there's a lot of great experiences. There's, uh, I'd, I'd love to fly the equipment, I think. Um, but yeah, that's a whole different world. Uh, we've we've often been told that the, you know, that the wide body world's a different airline. You yeah. know, everything it's Shangri La over there. The planes are never broken, and the stakes are always tender. It's like, huh, well, okay, <laughs> it's true. Hello. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I stayed on the MD eighty, and that may or may not have been problematic because. You know, the first couple of training events, I had limited exposure to uh, uh, legacy uh, as to what the training environment was even like. Because since I was staying in that equipment, they literally, I had to come to the airline headquarters, do one check ride. It wasn't even a check ride. It was a two hours in the sim with a check airman. I'm sorry, check pilot, check person, whatever we're doing these days. I shouldn't say that. I don't, I don't want to come across as, you know, insensitive, but I am. So anyway, um, <laughs> so, so you took, you took a PC, <laughs> not to be PC, but you took a proficiency check, <laughs> PC yes. in the, in the simulator. And then they go, here's, here's the, uh, literally here, uh, here's the handout about our procedures and the differences. And here's, here's our books. Go fly. Good luck. Okay, That's it. So then a year, uh, it's almost a year later, I, I do my first check ride. And uh, yeah, that was different. But I will say, um, compared to Reno Air, uh, at the legacy level, I've li- I've, I will say I've always had the impression they're not out to get you. They're out. They just want to make sure you know what you're doing up there and that you're safe. Yeah. That's their concern. Mm-hmm. They're and they will bend over backwards to help you attain that compared to training at Reno and even at my regional, you know, training at some of those levels. And Tony and I have talked about this a few times, a little more aggressive. Training's a little more aggressive. Oh yeah. You know, and, uh, but it's not the case when, when, once you get to this level, um, now does that make it good or bad? I don't know. That's a whole other discussion we can have because. You know, sometimes the training here, it maybe should have a slight more of an edge to it, not under a threat standpoint, but sometimes I don't think we train for when the, you know what, really hits the fan. Yeah. And that kind of concerns me a little bit because especially the Airbus, the Airbus, like any plane, has its quirks. And when you find one of those quirks and you're not familiar with it, Mm-hmm. You can uh, you can be in a world of hurt in a hurry. <laughs> yeah, there it goes doing and, that thing again. Yep. Yeah. So now you were an FO for how many years? Uh, nine, it took me nineteen and a half years to upgrade. Wait, American. say that again. Nineteen and a half years. Nineteen, I think. And a half I gotta years. do math. I gotta do math. So I started at a legacy at late ninety eight, and I upgraded. I finished upgrade training in December of fifteen. So. Now that's I'm probably exaggerating a bit because I could have held captain if I was going to commute to Miami or LaGuardia about a year earlier if okay. I wanted to commute. But 
you know, I, I wanted to be in LA. So, but you transitioned. You went from the from the MD eighty. Then they I went they to the MD parking them. Yes, they well they started parking them. So I, I started because I like to fly out of Ontario. Ontario is very close to where I live in in California. So, um, I went to the seven thirty seven mm-hmm. when I ultimately couldn't hold the eighty out of Ontario. Right, and then I flew that for four years. I went to seven thirty seven in twenty eleven. And and then again, kind of after my West Air experience, that was part of why I didn't jump on upgrade either. Was it's like I was going to upgrade in the seven three? I didn't want anything to do with that stupid Airbus. I heard all the stories. You know, <laughs> it's a flying computer, yeah. And they 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 teasingly would say like, you know, don't resist assimilation. It's like, well, you know. <laughs> And but then I have these old well-meaning guys I was flying with in Orange County, going, you know, Dave, that Captain Spigot's not going to be on forever. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so this guy he talked me into bidding Captain. It was literally the day you had to have your bids in by like eight p.m. that day, or for, you know, like for the next cycle or whatnot. Yeah. And I was just like, I don't want to do this, you know. So was, I remember I had a Seattle layover. And he's sitting there, he's going, come on, Dave, you should do it. You know, I'm sitting in the cockpit, and I literally, okay, fine. E, 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 e. Okay, there, see, I'm sending it. So I sent my bid, and I was like, and I was still about 500 numbers, mathematically, just sheer math, like 500 numbers away from the bottom guy in L.A. Uh, and I just went, I, I'm not going to worry about it. Sure enough, I get captain. The captain on the bus, and I'm just like, <laughs> really? I love it. It's like. Yeah, I went for a discovery flight, and yeah, it was just it was like it was okay. And then yeah, then I went for the interview, and I was like, yeah, you know, if I get hired at Reno, whatever, it's just like practice, and you get hired, and it's like yeah, I guess I, I guess I'll put in my upgrade request, the vacancy bid, and oh, look, I got my vacancy, I'm captain. Yeah, that's kind of entire career. Yeah, that's kind of that is starting to kind of sound like that, isn't it? Now that you put it all like that, you're but, welcome. Uh, you know, but yeah, you know, so I just. uh yeah, and it was uh, it was a, the, the Airbus was a little bit of a stretch. I mean, but it's one of these things that once you get used to it, though, because mm-hmm. you didn't see me go back. See, because we uh, most airlines, I guess, um, Legacy for sure, but I'm sure the other big three. When you're first upgrade, or anytime you change seats, they usually lock you in for a few years because right. they can't afford to constantly be training you. You know, so I figured after a two year lock in, I could go back. I could bid seven three captain, but frankly, Airbus is a nice enough uh, uh, airplane from a comfort standpoint, and ease of operation. You know, because you know yeah. some of us are better pilots than others, and you know, so <laughs> <laughs> Fifi keeps me out of trouble. You know, yeah. so that's what. Well, it is. You know, I have nothing against Boeing. I actually think Boeing is a is a is a superior manufacturer but being on the airbus and having sat in a jump seat of both seven threes and seven five seven sixes even occasional triple seven now and again commuting for over a decade to chicago back and forth from seattle from san francisco from la different airlines everyone's got their procedures that are pretty close but they're all a little different but i'll tell you what the sheer platform of the airbus flight deck the the fact that we can stand up at any point and stretch our legs we got a this tray table 
is in front of us. Uh, <laughs> Captain Roger always makes fun of me with the tray table. You and your damn tray table. Yeah, except they make us stow it now for no reason other than they wanted to be like the Boeing guys. Well, you know, for takeoff and landing, <laughs> got to stow these to climb out. We didn't used to have to do that. They're making yeah, this Yeah, well, in the event that we have to egress, you know, like the passengers, they have to stow them. Why can't we? But I, I get it. It's not a big deal. But the fact that it's there, the fly-by-wire thing, yes. The, the benefit of a Boeing product is when you turn the yoke, the input you put in is the input you're going to feel, more or less. That is not true. I, I disagree. Most jets, in fact, all jets, have to provide an artificial feel. Okay. Through, it's either through the hydraulic system, the pulling cable system, as in the MD-80, and or the bus with electronics. Okay. You cannot, you know, the large control surfaces on these jets and the speed that they're going, you do not have a one-to-one connection. You do well, not. Understood. So the plane yeah. has to, they have to manufacture, so to speak, a feel, you know, that's more reasonable for the pilot. And that's what it is. So you don't even get that in the Boeing. Yeah, the, the, in, the, in the Boeing, if all the hydraulics go out, you are still manually connected to the to the controls. It's called manual reversion, and it is a pain in the ass to fly that way. It is very, 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 very stiff and weird and not responsive. You know, it now, is, even it the is, Airbus has you know, the different laws, the direct law versus, right. but it's all fly by wire versus a, at least some reversionary backup right. pulley. But what I, what I'm talking about is, <laughs> now you you see anyone come in the land on a 737. Just go to YouTube and look at 737 <laughs> landing. And you see this exaggerated, you know, uh, movement of the yoke. You and you're like nothing. coming in. You ain't seen nothing until you've seen an MD-80. Well, I have seen an MD-80. I've been in the flight that, tech that, of MD-80s. That, that's exaggeration times 10. Times 10. <laughs> well, so, but on the Airbus, it's, you know, you got two fingers. Just, yeah. Just your thumb and your... In fact, if, if, in fact, most people, most people tend to over control for a while till they realize they don't have to right <laughs> just a little tap 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 right that's an airbus so the difference is what i'm talking about is the difference is there you know with the airbus you're coming in a land and you're just like okay you know, tap here tap here. no no okay tap the other way fine but with the with a boeing product you actually feel like you're doing something you're a Maybe you're not, but <laughs> it, it, you're, there's a lot more motion. There's a lot more movement. There's a lot more. <laughs> I got in trouble on a on a web board at one point, and we were having some discussion about something. I think this very thing, uh-huh. and I accused Boeing pilots of being like a bunch of Harley riders. Okay, because a bunch of you know Harley guys, and no offense out there. I don't want to hear any hate mail. Coming from but, a BMW, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do ride a BMW, by the way. But anyway. Uh, they'll pay twenty thousand, thirty thousand for a big, noisy, clunky motorcycle <laughs> that only until recently even had a hydraulic clutch, let alone you know hydraulic brakes and everything else. And that's kind of how it is in the Boeing world. These guys are thriving on, you know, the big control yoke and. And clickety 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 switch, clickety 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 switch. It's like, and they go, "Oh, this is better. This is better." It's like, really? You know, we just sit there and look at the roof and go, "Oh, the lights are out. Everything's cool. That's all we have to <laughs> <Yeah>. do." 
<laughs> we, don't have to, we don't have to touch anything. You barely, you know. Yeah. I mean, the the joke is in the in in the uh, in the Airbus when you when you you're not a real Airbus pilot till you stop watching engine starts. You just you just turn it on. Yeah, it'll <laughs> F- do its Fifi thing. will tell you if something's up. Yeah, you know you don't have to. You know, they don't want you to. No. Yeah, yeah. Just make sure the start initiated, and then go do your thing. <laughs> but yeah, I got some heat for uh, you know, Scott. You guys, you guys, you guys pay extra for primitiveness. Okay, let's see. I see. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I I said it before. I was very disappointed when uh, Legacy canceled their order for the A three fifty. I I still I still want to retire on that airplane, but I digress. Yep. Well, so you know, we've talked about your journey. Thank you for sharing that with us. You know, you've you've even given us a few stories but when we caught up at the beginning we, we almost didn't make it out on time out of ontario beginning of this trip because the first thing we did is like hey dave what's up hey tony what's going on and next thing you know we're on the flight deck they're boarding and we're i'm like so what have you been up to i probably shouldn't have asked you that until yeah. after we were at altitude <laughs> so we're telling me these stories i'm telling you stories and hey isn't there a checklist we have to do or yeah something? shouldn't we yeah. like program the fms system is it that's already done we already did that oh okay um isn't there something we're supposed to do so we, we made it out on time. Don't worry. We made it out on time, I think. <laughs> no, we were. Worry? <laughs> yeah, I think we, were, we might have been a minute late. So, you know, I don't think that was us, though. That wasn't us. No. Cargo door was open. That's right. Yeah. See? That's right. So we weren't on the clock so. yet. Yeah, so, so we, we do have a good time flying together. <laughs> yes. But you impressed me Uh-oh. when you said, <laughs> well, I was telling you, I was complaining. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's not mince words. I was complaining about the schedule and being reassigned and i told you that hey just so you know we'll probably be reassigned on this middle of this trip i haven't done a regular trip once yet this year and you're like well let me tell you my story <laughs> okay so yes my so i've been flying i i feel like i i don't like being the old guy you know but like in my 25 years at legacy the last month has just I don't even know what's come off the rails. I mean, I had a trip recently as, as, as regaling Tony with this. Uh, diverted twice in two days trying to get to LAX. And it just turned into a circus. We had a, we had a flight plan from Newark, New Jersey. And we're supposed to fly to LA. And we were going to have fairly marginal fuel. And with an uh, Ontario alternate and this, for those of you that live in Southern California, we've been getting deluged with these uh, atmospheric river storms. So LA weather was gusty crosswinds, almost 30 knots at times. And Ontario weather was supposed to be not quite that bad, but eventually getting that way. And I had, I was going to have fuel when I landed in LA that was going to give me basically one trip over to Ontario and maybe once around the pattern if we couldn't get in. And that's the amount of fuel I was going to get to LAX with. Yeah, not much. And so we fly all the way to LA and and I'm watching weather get worse and worse and worse. There are reports of severe turbulence, thunder showers developing in the LA area. And we're approaching an intersection called Gable, which is the start of the arrival into LA. And they go, Ellie's closed for a live rival. Stand by for holding. <laughs> uh, nice. <laughs> and I'm looking at my fuel and my, if I remember it right, I think it said I had like 10 minutes of hold fuel. So 
we enter the hold and the guys give now to expect further clearance times. And then in the same breath, the controller goes, yeah, these are arbitrary though. These probably aren't going to hold up. So just so you know, I mean, he's literally telling us, I was like, I'm giving you these times because I have to, but it's going to be a lot longer. Yeah. And then another flight was asking questions and the controller goes, well, yeah, we sent five guys in and one guy made it. Wow. <laughs> Whatever that means. That doesn't mean everybody crashed, but they means that, the, that they couldn't continue couldn't their approach land, yeah, into they, LA and they had to go somewhere else. Divert. So we like to divert to Phoenix and I do that. And like six guys literally right after me, it's kind of like, and it's kind of that way too. Tony would probably say the same thing. It's like one, once one guy goes, it's like, oh, I'm going too. You That's know? a good idea. So, yeah. so Now you said Ontario was your alternate. Ontario. So why'd you go to Phoenix? Well, I went to Phoenix because if I was going to, again, with the LA weather being so marginal, and I go, even if I went direct Ontario, now I'm going to be descending into Ontario with maybe not quite marginal fuel, but almost marginal fuel. And if I can't get into Ontario, well, where am I going to go then? Because... Every airport, I don't want to say every airport, but the weather basically west of Ontario is not good. So my choice is go back to Palm Springs, which which is unfamiliar mountainous airport, possibly quite windy even there, although I hadn't looked at the weather there. Vegas was a possibility also, a little further away. Well, it wouldn't have been as far away if, you know, if I would have proceeded to Ontario and had to get out of there. Um, but again, that's just going to put me in in a very marginal fuel state, even if I went direct my alternate from where I was, considering the weather, and the weather in Ontario was even starting to deteriorate at that time. Mm. And the, the reason this all kind of happened, too, was in it, because it's wintertime, there were significant headwinds. Uh, the airplane was full of gas. We couldn't take any more fuel. So it wasn't like... You know, all you pilots out there are probably going, well, gee whiz, why didn't you just add some more fuel? Well, geez, I only had 52,500 pounds of fuel, you know? (laughs) I mean, you you know, by the time we landed in Phoenix, we'd already been in the air for seven hours as it was. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, that's kind of what goes into your thought process. And, yeah, so that's why we went to Phoenix. Because I I could literally, I'm looking over my shoulder in the holding pattern, I can see Phoenix. Yeah. And... An adage some of you may or may not have been taught when you were uh, fledgling instrument pilots, you know, your alternate needs to be good as gold. It really does. So when you're flying IFR and our alternate was not good as gold. And even the the dispatcher, we had the discussion, we had the discussion of a fuel stop, which means we would stop, you know, short of our destination intentionally to just get some more fuel. Um, They were not really receptive to that in my case. And I... I probably should have said, well, no, we are, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we didn't. Um, so yeah, that's why we wanted so to go dropped Phoenix. Into Phoenix. Dropped into Phoenix. And now we, now we can dovetail into fatigue because it's like 1230 AM, give or take. I'm trying to remember my times. And then they announced that there's a ground stop in LA till 1 AM. And I'm already thinking, you know, so, okay, so... Let's pretend we take off at one, which we won't, but let's pretend we take off at one. I got a full tank of gas, which I would have. And I'm going to go over there into, I don't want to, possibly severe weather, but but challenging weather, to say the least. What am I going to feel like in an hour and a half? 
and it's probably not going to be landing east in LA, which is, I don't want to say it's unusual, but it's not something we do all the time. Right. You know, all these things add to fatigue, all these things add to, um, but as luck would have it, the ground stop at one o'clock became two o'clock AM. So that we did elect to call Y elected to call in fatigued. So then that changed into, it took us almost an hour and a half plus to actually get a hotel room. And then there weren't any hotels available in the area. So we had to spend an extra half hour driving to a far away hotel. Mm -hmm. And then when we got there, there was like two or three other airline crews. Mm -hmm. And then the hotel itself isn't used to airline crews. So they're challenged in getting us all checked in. So it probably took a good 45 minutes to actually check in. This all adds up to, I have a, I have a hotel room key in my hand at 4.30 a.m. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I call the airline. We call it tracking, but, you know, whichever version of that. It's basically crew scheduling. Yeah. And I go, hey, we're going to need at least 10 hours. 10 hours from now, you know, try to get a minimum eight-hour rest. Let's make it a 1.30 in the afternoon pickup time for us. That should give me time to, you know, get back to the airport, get eight hours of rest, take the one hour and 10 minute, give or take flight back to LA. Life will be good, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we do that. Except for the part where I get a call at 10.30 in the morning in my room saying, hey, your van's here. <laughs> and this is after I'd ever made all these arrangements yeah. saying that, hey, hey, airline, uh, we need to be picked up. Okay, yeah, we'll be okay. You know, it's like, it's like, just like, no, you right. guys are, so I, I get hold of my first officer. We managed to get to the airport by about a quarter till 12. They wanted us to leave at 1218. We actually wound up leaving at about 1240. And we're still a little tired, but we're like, you know what? It's it's an hour and 10 minutes to, to LA. Right. We're familiar. What could possibly go wrong? Dun, right. Dun, dun. Yeah. Famous last words. Taxi out. And I, I have a reasonable fuel load. I have a little more fuel this time. Ontario is my alternate again, as luck would have it. You know, I've already been to this, been to this party. So it takes us one hour to get our final closeout numbers after we taxi out from the gate. Nice. So, so now I've burned off some of my fuel. And the reason I didn't shut my engine down for all you naysayers out there is because we kept getting flow times from the tower and they kept saying, if you miss this flow time, it's going to be another 20 minutes. So I didn't want to miss the next one. So I didn't want to have to sit there and restart my engine to miss the flow time to get another flow time, et cetera, et cetera. So it just turned into that. So we took off with our basically marginal, what we call, we have release fuel and we have takeoff fuel. Mm -hmm. So takeoff fuel is the minimum fuel I can take off with without getting either more fuel or authorization from dispatch to leave with even a lesser amount. So we had a little over that amount, but not much. Take off, going over to LA. They reroute us, of course. Mm. So they send us way south. We're going to land east. Now, I'd already checked the weather in LA. It was marginal, but better than the night before, and there weren't any delays. And, but I get the ATIS... And it says thunderstorms in the vicinity. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course it does. So we, as we approach LA, the weather's getting worse. I have to sit the flight attendants down. There's about three planes in front of me. I'm following everybody into LA. We're going in and out of moderate turbulence, in and out of the rain showers. 
As we approach the approach course, we can see that there's a large thunderstorm that's just south of the arrival. And the, you can see the controllers kind of vectoring us all around. And we're going to go around the end of this thing and try to land in LA. Problem was, nobody's going around. There's no delays. It wasn't a problem, but it's like, everything seems okay. And I'm just kind of going along going, well, you know, just as we kind of started entering the weather, I could still look over my left shoulder and look down the coast. Probably could have made San Diego. But now we're But hey, everyone's going into LA. So here we go. They literally just turned us on to what would have been a downwind for us pilot types. And we're just about over the coast of Catalina Island, for those of you familiar with SoCal again. And they go, LA's closed to arrivals. Oh. Stand by for holding. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so we do that. And it's, it becomes, I check my computer. My computer says, I'm going to have 6,900 pounds, give or take, when I land in Ontario, which is Antonio Willis. That's kind of marginal. Yeah. It's, it's not, not much. It's not undoable, but it's, it's, it's not ideal. And considering the weather, it's like, so I'm not holding. I'm going to Ontario. So I, I get rooting to Ontario. They give us a route. And again, for this is probably for the people that don't understand this stuff it's a, it's like victor so-and-so to this vor victor so-and-so over here so it takes a moment to enter this when i enter this route it says i'm going to land now i'm going to have three thousand nine hundred pounds oh my god into uh ontario now that's low that's low yeah so i call minimum fuel that means that that, that what i'm saying is i can't take any any undue delay to the airport and company in front of me almost in stereo does the same thing you know, because they got the same routing I did. And then, so, and then we, we basically bounce back through the weather and all of a sudden the company in front of us goes, mayday, 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 emergency fuel, you know, have to land immediately. So they turned me away from Ontario momentarily to let them go first. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. And I'm still looking at my box and it's, the box is, it's flickering between about 37 and 3,800 pounds. And I'm like, okay, if, the, if this goes any lower, I'm going to have to do the same thing. Yeah. But then they give me direct the fix for the arrival and we go land in Ontario. And now I'm in Ontario. Yeah. So we sit on the ground for almost an hour before they'll even bring the jetway up. Oh they bring God. the jetway up. Yeah. And then they inform me there's going to be another hour for a fuel truck because of all the other diverts. I only got one truck. Yeah. So I'm sitting there, and then my flight attendants inform me that they're going to legally time out <laughs> if, I don't, if we don't leave by... And this is, you know, I'm kind of fast-forwarding, but this is over the course of two or three or four hours this is all going on. Mm -hmm. And so we finally... Okay, okay, let's go, let's go. Da, da, da. So we, we get a clearance and we button up the jet, we push back, and I realized that we have not even loaded our navigational computer, let alone done a preparation checklist, let alone done a before start checklist, let alone. <laughs> and you just realize that I was sitting there feeling like I already had about three beers. Just You're that tired. I'm that tired. Yeah. So I literally told the tug driver, because he was still hooked up to the airplane, I go, hey, pull it back onto the jet. I'm done. Up to the jetway. I'm done flying. I'm yeah. done. You know? And that's how that trip went. You know? So. You know, but that's the, 
you had all these obstacles. For those who say, well, don't you pilots just push the automatic pilot buttons and read a paper and drink coffee all day long and sit there and just <laughs> monitor computer systems? Doesn't the airplane land itself? I mean, no. <laughs> and uh, no. This is the kind of stuff Tony that... Tony drinks coffee all day long, but anyway. Well, I have to, otherwise I'm... <laughs> so, <laughs> so I've had an IV of Starbucks I just carried around on a on an extension with wheels, I would. Um, this is the kind of stuff that we deal with every single day. Some days are a cakewalk. They're pleasurable, they're boring, nothing happens, and other days, this is what we deal with. It's a shit show. Yeah, it really is. And we're managing these micro disasters. And we make sure that they don't turn into a real disaster. So we're taking care of all these situations. We're making all these choice decisions. And you made a fantastic choice. You said, you know what? I'm, I'm not making sound decisions. I'm tired. Look at, the, look at what I've missed. We are not going to continue. Right. And you did something that a lot of people hesitate with. You got pulled back to the gate and said, I'm done, which was the right thing to do. Because when you work from the hearing backwards, <laughs> why did you continue yes. after you realized you made all that? You know, and, and I, I enjoyed you telling me that. I do appreciate you sharing that with us as well. But that wasn't the only trip. Oh, God. That you. So the next told trip. Me, <laughs> tell me about the, This is literally, I'm not even kidding, folks. The next trip after this one. So we wind up in Atlanta one point in the middle of a, uh, call it the middle of the two days. Where, uh, our trip's going to be Atlanta, Dallas, Dallas, Ontario. And we should be done. That's our trip. So, take off out of Atlanta. There's a lot of weather north of Dallas, but it's all north of Dallas. And I even query the dispatcher again, and he goes, yeah, don't worry about it. It's going to stay north of Dallas. Don't worry about it. And I, I have reasonable fuel. I got a Houston alternate, which, you know, I've got a lot of fuel. So, as we approach Dallas, the storms aren't north of Dallas. The storms are in Dallas. <laughs> right over the top. <laughs> Stand by for holding. You know, it's like, I'm getting pretty good at this. <laughs> so we start into holding. We hold for about 40, 45 minutes. Wow. Start bringing us in. And we're pointed right at this. This uh, our, our weather radar shows green, red, yellow. Red's bad. Yellow's don't want to go in there anyway. And green, depending on the airplane, is either going to be light chop or you probably shouldn't go in there. Uh, so, air traffic control has us heading towards this yellow area. I start seeing red just in the kind of speckling in the middle of it, mm -hmm. you know. So, I asked the guy for a little turn, and he goes, well, I can give you a turn for about four or five miles, and I got to turn you back to keep you in line with the other jets and the guy coming in behind you. So, we do that, and the ride's not bad. I will say the ride's not bad. It's, it's, it's moderate to heavy rain, but the ride's not bad. But sure enough, just all of a sudden, just kablooey, we get hit by lightning. Just you know just just like that you know so you're like okay well it's one more thing i got to tell them we go in and land you know so that happens have to change planes go to change planes the the as we're sitting on the ground too in dallas i should point out uh the plane that we were supposed to fly wound up diverting also so mm. we're waiting for a plane that diverted so now we're adding hours we're adding hours to our departure time plane finally shows up it's got a deferred uh, air bleed 
off of the AP, which is what we use to start the engines. We use air to start the engines. And get everybody loaded. And again, this is an hour or two or three going by while well, this is happening, but we get everybody loaded up. We have a procedure that we use to when we, we call it an external air start. So we're doing that. Go to start the engine. Nothing happens. Flat line. Nothing happens. So the first thing you go, hey, you guys turned the cart on out there. What's going on? They go, you know. So they monkey with the cart. Try to start the thing again. Won't start. Airplane's not having any. So I asked the guy again. I go, hey, what's up with the cart? And he goes, ah, we're looking at it. Just a minute. It's probably already been a half hour. And you got to remember, too, that since I had the auxiliary power unit was available for electricity, the jet bridge has been pulled off. There's no external air on the airplane because you don't need it. And theoretically, we should have just started and left, but now it won't start. Now the plane's getting stuffy. They can't find an air cart. They're going to go find another air cart. Another half hour goes by. You know, the plane's getting stuffier and hotter and stuffier and hotter. I'm getting constant calls from the back. And they can't get the jet started. They can't get the cart started. They can't get the, all this stuff's going on. They finally get another cart. Get it hooked up. This one's for sure working correctly. We go to start the jet. Jet won't start. <laughs> now we're probably hour and a half, something after we initially buttoned this thing up, trying to get going. And so I'm frantically calling our operations, trying to get someone down to, to bring the jetway back up so we can get some air. Trying to get permission to start the right engine so that I can get some air. Nobody's talking to me. It's just this constant, nobody's talking to you. Nobody yeah, responds. That's the most nobody. Yeah. And I finally get hold of maintenance and I finally get an ops people down. They finally bring the jet bridge down. But this, now we're probably, I don't know, a couple, three hours since the original attempt to depart. Maintenance is accusing me of not knowing how to start the airplane. <laughs> <laughs> and we have alternate procedures. Uh, there's several different checklists, depending, do you have air? Do you have external air? Uh, you know, there's this thing we have called a manual start that you do under certain conditions. The, these conditions weren't here, although I could have made an argument that with a weak air cart, we probably could have done that. But the, the engine wasn't starting. So after a long and arduous conversation maintenance, they figure out that the engine start valve is not working on the left engine. And that's the one we start first, and that's the one that hasn't been able to start. So they're going to do what they call a manual start valve operation, which means they literally get out a big wrench, and they talk to you on the headset, and then they go, when you say go, they, they manually hold the valve open while you start the engine. You start it, and away you go. So, and there's a whole separate procedure to do that. So we're attempting to do that. This airplane will not no, start. start. That's it will not start. So, again, more accusations that I'm not doing things correctly, you know. Do you know what you're doing, Captain? Apparently not. <laughs> so after about literally four hours of this nonsense, I just refused the jet. I go, get me another jet, you know. And they're, everyone's very upset with this because they don't like to do that. I have, by the way, started the other engine finally, because we had to get some air. Right. You know, but we can't get the left engine started. We change jets. We get to the other, the other jet. It takes, you know, half hour, whatever it takes to get the people and everything over. 
We button that jet up, pull the jetway back. It takes almost one more hour sitting there before they get all the bags loaded Ugh. and the cargo's closed. <laughs> so this, what this all turns into is about, we were legally, we were allowed to be on duty for 14 hours that day based on our sign-in time and FR 117 and all these uh, rest regulations that we have now. And we were on duty for, now we can extend that by two hours. And there's all the naysayers out there because there's all these guys like, well, I, I never extend. The company can just pound sand because I'm going to make sure that I'm going to be, you know, whatever it is, whatever vendetta you're carrying mm-hmm. around, you know, because you're out there. I know you're, I can, I, can, I can hear you right now. So, but we took an extension. It, it was, was sp- go home leg? It was, it was, well, it might've been the go home leg. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> that's the only reason why you would. <laughs> But they told us 20 minutes. Uh-huh. It turned into an hour 40. Jeez. So we were on duty for 15.39. You know, max is 16 hours in this right. case with the extension. With the extension, 16 hours. And it took 15 hours and 39 minutes of duty to get this stupid plane started and back to Ontario. And again, you don't, in the midst of all of this, I would have told you I wasn't even tired. I was pissed, but I wasn't tired. I wasn't tired until top of descent into Ontario. And I'm telling you, and I'm not trying to equate alcohol with flying or anything, but you're kind of descending or whatnot, and you're going, God dang it, man, I feel like I've had a beer or two. You well, know? that's exactly and you, and you the, don't And you don't even really know it yeah. until you know it, and you're just going, oh, oh. The, the, you know? There are plenty and, of studies out there about fatigue, and that's exactly what they equate it to. When you get to a certain level of fatigue, when it comes to motor skills and awareness and mental acuity and psychological acuity, it's like having two or three drinks. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so subtle. I can't emphasize how subtle it is. You don't even know. You don't even know. Like even my first incident I just talked about, you don't even really know you're doing it to yourself. You know, you just don't really. It's weird. Yeah. You know, you have but, to be really attentive to you and your body and your per Because everyone has their own personal levels. You know, some people can go much longer and other people, they need, uh, you know, minimum eight hours of rest every night. And if they don't get it, then they're just not on their game and they don't catch up until they get their, their catch up sleep, right. you know. So, now we should point out for the audience that Legacy's stated policy, they would never push a pilot to fly fatigue and they, and they, they would. No, if you, huge you, you You can call fatigue. Right. But there is a little wrinkle dinkle that they, that they do. So let's say you had a bad night in the hotel, as an example. So now you're going to call fatigue. So you call fatigue. As opposed to what I went through, which is cancellations, weather, diversions, whatnot. Right. So they're still going to sit there and go, well, was this systemic or was this not systemic? And if it's not systemic, they may or may not pay you for the time you lose. Right. See, and that's as much as they say, Oh, it's no fault. You know, you, you know, it's no, no fault fatigue. It's like, eh, it might cost you something though. Right. Cause they're still going to sit there and determine if it's systemic or not, you know? And it's kind of interesting too, how we spend a lot of time in training. And then we ask, ask Tony here, we get fatigue training every quarter. We have to do a home study with fatigue training. Every time we go to recurrent, we get a fatigue module, whatever it is. And yet when you're out there in the trenches, it's like, they don't give a shit. 
Like well, all the, all the stuff they teach you, yeah. and then they and then they just sit there and go, "Hey, you guys ready? You guys ready? You guys ready? Hey, you know, you know the fatigue thing I said. The da 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 da. Yeah, but are you guys ready? <laughs> right, right. They will they will make sure that you and you know uh, Roger actually on the last podcast we were talking about this on the very last episode um, that there are pilots out there. It is the human condition that they will use whatever means necessary to take care of themselves and. They use fatigue sometimes as a weapon against the company because maybe they're trying to extend you and you don't want to yep. extend and you're, you could do it, but you're like, you know what? Oh, then I'm fatigued then. So there are those instances that play a sour note in terms of management's perspective of pilots calling in fatigue. And, and I can that's kind of what I was that. alluding to earlier. Yeah. Like, you know, like I can hear people going, oh, what did you extend for? You know, right. there's, there's that crowd out there that's exactly what you just said. Right. You know, and so I think there's a with with everything in life, there's a balance, and if you if you keep your decision making balanced, and you go well, you know, if anybody else was in the situation, would they come up reasonably with the same assessment I've just made upon myself that I'm too tired? And if you kind of go there and you go well, you know, honestly, top of descent, you're on final, and you're feeling like you've had a couple of drinks, even though you haven't. Because you're tired. And now you have a, an engine fire. Are yeah. you going to perform your duty to get everybody on the ground safe, safely and efficiently and to the top of your game? And the answer is, if the answer is no, then you got to make that assessment way back when right. you're still on the ground at your departure destination to go, okay, worst case scenario, will I make it through? Right. And if the answer is no, then unfortunately, I'm not, I'm not trying to be an advocate to call it fatigue here. But what I am trying to say is know your limits because liability is what runs the world, this company, and they want to protect themselves from that. But it's very difficult, I think, for, well, I'll say it's very difficult for most pilots, (laughs) not all of them, but most of us have extreme sympathy for what a delayed or canceled flight does to our passengers. Yeah, we're doers. We get stuff done. We're doers. Occasionally, I'm guilty of it myself, you know, where you just, yeah, you might be kind of pushing yourself a little because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to cancel the flight or I don't want to, you know, and, you know, I I don't want to say that I'm certainly not a mission hacker, but we do have those guys out there. And yeah, there's a, like I said, it's a balance and we have to weigh that balance to make sure that we're operating safely, not just for ourselves, but for the people that we travel with and the company and our employees and everyone else. Now, thank you for, for sharing those stories. Um, I, th- I think there's a lot to be learned yeah. from them, um, which is why I've asked you again to come on and share your story with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, the next segment I just wanted to dive into is some Q&A. With all your experience and all your history in aviation, you have some insight that is going to be very valuable especially for those just starting out in this industry uh, one of those things is you know just you're dealing with a crowd of a new generation of pilot coming through now you know you started out at a different time the captain was always right rule number one rule number two when the captain makes a mistake see rule number one that was it don't touch any buttons everything on this side of the cockpit's mine you're going to touch anything else Ask me first. That these were the attitudes of the day. Times have changed, for the better. But what with that comes 
a new generation of pilots that aren't quizzed on how many fan blades are on the motor. What's the internal turbine temperature during an APU start at 37,000 feet? Yeah, all these obscure questions that your Czech airmen or your sim um, checking events would, would try to pull out of you out of these orals. Do, did you study? Did you, do you know your airplane? That's what they're asking. Those days are gone. Now it's a kindler, gentler. Uh, not just with legacy airlines, but with all of them, even the regionals. They just want to make sure, can you do the procedures? Do you know what to do? Are your, is your muscle memory there so that in the event you have something like an, a V1 cut with an airplane full of people, full of fuel, are you going to know what to do? This is what they're really focused on. They don't really care if you can build the airplane anymore. But with that said, there's some pros and cons. Do you think the next generation of pilot the new hires per se that you've been flying with that are coming through the civilian ranks do you see them with some pros and cons in terms of what they offer in the industry versus old school mentality of new hires that were coming through and they had to basically build the airplane well i think i i would have to say when you just said that they're pros for some of the newer folks that i've flown with um as most of us are probably aware we've gone very electronic. Our documents are all on iPads. Um, everything's in the cloud. Um, a lot of the newer pilots are very adept at the iPad. They're very adept at, uh, you know, the software. Um, even the computer entries in the airplane, they're actually quite good at. Um, so that'd be, I'd have to say that's probably one of their strengths is. Um, in that realm, you know, um, they're good with the magenta. Exactly. You know, and that's, that's not a bad thing. Um, but like some of, some of the more astute FOs I'll fly with, I'll go, Hey, why don't you turn off the auto thrust? And the typical response is, Oh, I, I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I'm ready for that. And I just, I find that kind of curious because I know for a fact that even if you, came up through the automated pilot ranks for lack of a better description you probably still had to fly an airplane they had to go you know fast slow you know throttle off throttle on you know and i find that interesting that you don't think you want to do it in this airplane and what unless it's in the sim and you're just practicing you know but i mean once a year yeah. yeah why don't you uh you know why don't you turn off those flight directors and yeah it's like even our training we have a, a, yeah, we have a, we have a practice. What do I try and think of a scenario that we do where you do you turn off your flight directors and we have this thing called the flight path vector mm-hmm. and it just shows you where the attitude of the airplane is, and they suggest where to put the flight path vector to stay on a glide on a glide path to the runway. You know, keep you at nice seven hundred feet a minute down, give or take, and. You know, hey, well, I just use that flight path vector. And then I've had typical responses. Well, you know, I, I, I don't use that. I, I, I don't really look at that that much. <laughs> yeah. I find that interesting. Well, when you're you new know? on the airplane, you want to, you know, you have the, your standard and you want to stay within those standards. And occasionally you might hit one side or the other side and you're, you know, you're still kind of getting the feel of the airplane. But once you get comfortable and you can keep that airplane right in the middle of the standard and you're right there, right on track, 
then to change that up and go, you know what? Uh, let me go raw data on this one. It's a beautiful VFR day. We're coupled to the ILS. Let's go raw data. I want to turn flight directors off, autopilot, autopilot off, flight directors off. Give me the bird. Give me three degree uh, down uh, on the uh, descent. And let me try just flying this raw data. Well, that pulls you out of that comfort zone. Yeah. And now you're going to have to, and especially if you're doing like manual thrust. I mean, I was on an airplane that didn't have auto throttles in my previous airline. So uh, that was me 24-7. So now to come onto the Airbus and request that, go, hey, uh, by the way, and you hopefully briefed it for your other pilot and go, yeah, this is what I plan on doing. If the weather's good, I might turn off the, okay, fine. At least they're prepared. It's interesting you say that because I had a guy get very upset with me one time. What, you didn't? No, I just popped off the auto thrust. Yeah. Yeah, and then we landed. Mm Mm-hmm. And his response was, you know, if, if you're going to turn off that auto thrust, you, you need to brief me on that before you do it. He's very upset with me. And That's I was what like, the chick airmen are <laughs> harping on right now is <laughs> like, like, don't do anything unless you've briefed it. It's like, you should have like, briefed it. Well, my briefings don't last 37 minutes right. at the top of decent. They last about two. Right, exactly. So I can't, I can't always brief yeah. everything. But yeah, I mean, there are those that get all bent out of shape. They come out of their comfort. But it's zone. that mentality. I think that's. I think that's, that's what you're problem. kind of asking. It's just like, well, why does that alarm a person? It's not like I'm completely okay. We're we're going to do an RNAV now instead of this ILS I briefed. That's, that's completely out. You know. Yeah. But hey, I'm just turning off the auto thrust. Why does that alarm this person to the point that they feel the need to go? <gasps> You didn't talk about that. I'm not in my safe space, Captain. I was just like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm not trying to say it as a slant to the new pilots out there. I'm not inferring that at all, you know, but it's just like, I mean, I learn from everybody I fly with, good, bad, and ugly. And I scared you a little bit. Was it last night? Yeah, coming in here. Where? Coming in here. Yeah. It was what a beautiful VFR. This time. I mean, and what did you do? <laughs> this time. And, and it was beautiful VFR. And I said, you know what? Uh, I had seen you that do it scare once me. or twice. And I went, oh, I'm going to go raw data. So uh, flight directors, autopilot off, flight directors off. I you wanted, thought I was. I wanted to do what you did. And I auto thrust off. And okay. I was like, you were like, oh, are we? Uh, and we were having a discussion actually about cutting in on a visual inside the final oh, that's right. fix okay. and all that stuff. So we're talking and I look up and I go, oh, I'm a little fast. Oh, I don't know, 10 knots fast for, for a minute, less than a yeah. minute. And I corrected immediately. And you went, all right, thousand foot, uh, kind of stable. I'm, I'm, cor- <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm correcting yeah. kind of. And immediately before I was done talking, I was it's, already on was, speed. Yeah, just like, and of course, uh, you know, fine. And I look over and <laughs> just kind of smiling, like whatever. Good landing, <laughs> rolled off the runway. And I went, oh, did I scare you? <laughs> no. You're like, I don't know why. No. What did you do? No. <laughs> Didn't <Yep>. even notice. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> so, no, so. The, it's, it's interesting you say that. I, I always like to get that perspective. I think that, you know, the, de- the different generations of pilots show a little bit, bring a little bit something extra, and it, it develops us as a career professional pilot, and everyone kind of brings something different to the table. Um, and I just appreciate getting your perspective yeah. on that. Well, the so. other part too is just like when I first started in the bus and I was probably a little uncertain those first couple months, you know, and then you, then you force yourself or you have some guy, a well-meaning FO going, Hey, turn off the auto thrust. Hey, cause I, you know, and once you actually do that a few times, then your confidence in the airplane goes way up. Yeah. You know? 
and he but it's almost like you have to get past that i don't know that automation hurdle if you will yeah you know because airbus is a fabulous plane in my opinion uh as far as how it flies uh, how it flies yeah you know but when you fly it you may you, you may get used to letting it fly instead of you flying it and i guess that's kind of our point right you know maybe you should fly it once in a while you know and yeah. then that way you get even more confidence in it you can you know, so when it does, when things are weird, when there is super gusty crosswinds, when there is, you know, things like that, you know, sometimes it's better to have uh, the thrust off, in my opinion. And if you're not confident to do that, right, could be a problem. Could I mean, be, <laughs> right. So now, now in all your time, you've had this career, you've had people in your past help you along the way. I often say that. We as aviators at this level in the game, after decades of experience, stand on the shoulders of all those aviators that came before yes. us that have helped us, that have given us advice that we've learned from. Yes. Now, let's just say you can go back in time, just for a moment, and whisper in your own younger ear, just for a moment, and say, and give yourself some advice. What would you tell yourself? What would I say? I would say you need... You you can't be so hard on yourself because you, you you can't fly perfectly all the time. It's not possible. And you're going to make a mistake. You're going to get off course. You're going to, you know, it's not the end of everything if that happens once in a while, you know. And And don't be afraid of the airplane. The, air, the airplanes are tougher than you think they are. Because even now, you know, when you're getting you're getting into moderate or better turbulence, a couple of rides into Reno that I've had, you kind of wonder how much these things can take. I still do, you know, and believe me, they can take a lot of punishment. I think. Yeah, works good. Lasts a long and time. And that's probably what I would tell myself. And I would also tell myself, genuinely know how to do something else besides this to earn a living. Have your backup. Plan. Have a backup plan. <laughs> Very good advice. You know. So <laughs> Yeah, we often put all our eggs in one basket, especially those of us who care about, you know, how we operate and how we do things and want to have that perfect light. So yeah, it's very good advice to just go easy, give yourself a break. Yep. You know, there's no such thing as perfect. Do your best to get that, but you know, go easy. Cause it seems to me I've gotten I would say the instructors, check airmen, whoever that have been a little more laid back yet thorough are the ones I've gotten the most out of. Yeah. You know. Well, you can let your guard down right. and actually pay attention and pull something out of it right. instead of having your guard up the whole time, being so nervous, not even realizing what just happened. Right. Yeah. Now, we, we talked about standing on the shoulders of those aviators that came before us. You know, think back to a person in your life that had the biggest impact on your personal career. Who would that person be and what would you tell them? You know, that's one of those, that is a very, that's an intense question. Um, believe it or not, it'd be my brother because, and I'm very, I'm, I'm almost estranged from my brother, as weird as this sounds, but I simply wouldn't be a pilot if he hadn't made me go get that uh, intro flight. I, I simply wouldn't be an airline pilot. I'd, I would be doing something else. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, it, 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 it sounds weird to say, and he's not even an aviation guy. Well, he worked for Boeing, Boeing Computer Services, but he wasn't like, 
you know, a pilot or anything like that. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. As far as my career went, I mean, I simply wouldn't be a pilot if it wasn't for him. What do you think he saw with aviation for you that had him suggest that? I think, well, like I said, I was this mopey, unmotivated teenager, you know, and in my heart at that point, I genuinely wanted to be an accountant. But I think I wanted to be an accountant because that was going to be safe. I was pretty good at it, at least at that point. And you're always going to have a job, you know, and the flying thing was probably, I don't, I don't know why he thought that I should go try to fly airplanes or something. I'm not even a hundred percent sure he meant that as a career, but I think he just saw that I needed to get maybe down a different path somehow. Be more challenged, maybe. Maybe. Uh, Get out of your box a little bit. Yeah. You know, because I'm not one of these maniac pilots. It's like, I'm not saying the pilots are maniacs, but, you know, some guys I think can ride along and where there's, we have predictions of severe turbulence. You know, I, I get a little nervous and I try to avoid it. And I just, as some guys I feel like, ah, whatever. I don't think they even think about it. I think they don't even think about it. Yeah. Just, what's the worst that can happen? And I'm all like, <laughs> I'm like, there's, there's 190 people back here that might, <laughs> you know, so I, I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, I still I still say that I'm kind of a reluctant pilot as weird as weird as that sounds, you know. Yeah. But um, reminds me of the old adage there are old pilots and bold pilots, but there are no old bold pilots. That's hopefully mostly true. <laughs> yeah. Now you the last question uh before we need to start wrapping it up and getting ready for our delayed departure. Um a lot of young people are choosing aviation now especially with these salaries what they are sure uh, these uh you know regional airline pilots are, are making a killing with their bonuses and their salaries and according to the statistics uh boeing recently put out a statistic uh, uh about a month ago indicating that they've revamped their estimation that airlines all over the world are going to be requiring uh, new hire pilots in the thousands uh, until the year 2035. So we got a more than a decade ahead of opportunity that basically if you have your ratings, got a good head on your shoulders, a good attitude, most importantly, you could pretty much write your ticket. At least that's what the projections are right now, today. What advice would you give a aspiring young man or woman um, that comes to you and says, hey, I'm thinking about a career in aviation. What do you think I should do? What's the best way forward? Well, the first thing I would say is don't believe everything you hear. Because when I was, I distinctly remember in the middle of my commercial instrument training, and my instructor was telling me, do you know you have a guaranteed career? You're, you're starting at the best time. You know, it's, it's I mean, this is, I, I, he's, he's going to go be a pilot. We're guaranteed. You're set for life. You're set for life doing this. When when uh, Legacy bought Reno, okay, and I'm talking to the whichever American captain, you know, new American captains I'm flying with. You know, I'm looking at a multimillionaire here. You know that you should. You're set for life. Just like you're saying, oh, it's nothing but roses for a decade. 
Really? <laughs> and look what happened. <laughs> really? Yeah. I don't believe everything you hear. I'm not trying to be negative Nelly or whatever, but, you know, and I even told the one old guy that was telling me this, I go, you know, 25 years is a long time. That's what I told him. Yeah. And that's what I would say. You know, a, a decade, two decades, it's a long time. The other pilot adage, you know, check your six. So even with even with all the the numbers and stats, what you're saying is have a backup plan. Yep. Or just don't yeah, have a backup plan or live a you know, it's it's kind of a, maybe it's another pilot joke. Oh, the guy with two ex-wives and three mortgages, you know, how does he make ends meet, you know, and you know, you're making you know, 300,000 a year and you're living paycheck to paycheck because we fly with those guys. Yeah. They're out there. Picking up all the open time, I'd, premium time I'd you can. I kind of recommend not doing that <laughs> as a pilot <laughs> for the reasons we're talking about. Yeah. You know, I mean. What's that's, here that's today could be gone say. tomorrow. Yep. Yep. I, yeah. Like you said, to have, have the rainy day saved up to have something, you know, don't just, you know, if you you make 300,000, maybe spend 100 a year. <laughs> you yeah. don't have to spend all three. Live, you know? I used to say live like a regional FO and you're going to be set for life financially. Yep. But I can't say that anymore. Because <laughs> regional FOs make <laughs> twice as much as I do. There you go. There you go. That's true too. So, yeah. But, so have uh, your backup plan. Have your backup plan. Yeah. Um like one of the many little pilot books I read at the time and you again as a kid as a young person, you just blow this off, but it goes, be prepared to be furloughed once during your career, at least once. Yeah. And you, I, I, I read that, I mentally went, eh, whatever. <laughs> you know, now, I consider myself completely fortunate because I've never been furloughed. As, as much as I've, quote unquote, endured, I've never had to endure a furlough. So yeah. I consider myself very fortunate as yeah. far as my career, aviation career went yeah. or has gone. So. But yeah, just like, it's just, it's those little things, you know, just, yeah, like you said, have a backup plan, live within your means. I mean, as corny as that sounds, you might give that advice to anybody, but I'd take a pilot's, I'd take a pilot's head and knock him up against the wall once, and I mean it, Yeah, (laughs) you know? So, I mean, that's, yeah, that's, try to, to try to have fun. You always have to have fun out there. and. At least attempt to. Cause no, you, there's no laughing here. There's no laughing. There's no laughing here. Because there's people you're going to fly with that you just want to throw them across the street, you know? And, you know, just just try to be, try to be reasonable, you know, try to be good-natured in the cockpit. Try to be, remember, whichever seat you're in, if you alienate the other seat, you're going to have a lot of problems. You're a single pilot now. You're going to have a lot of problems. Yeah. You know, that that person will keep you out of a lot of trouble. You know, it's the, I always say that the, the operating handbook says minimum crew, two pilots for a reason, at least in the transport airplanes, you know. For now. Yep. Well, for <laughs> now. See, see, and then I get this shit. See, see, this is like, you know. Don't worry, so, you'll be replaced with a monkey and a... That's right. <laughs> a monkey and a duck. Oh, that was the coal mine, wasn't it? Oh, uh, yeah. The canaries. The canary and the, the canary in the coal mine. Yeah. So, Single what was the pilot. four things you bring? You bring a dog. What is it? You bring a cat and a duck. 
Like the cat's supposed to keep the duck awake or some. There's some. I don't some know. Some pilot thing or something to. Yeah. I, I can't remember, but. Anyway, <laughs> well, it just you know, again, thank you for spending the time. Oh, with thanks me for having here. me. This is this is your relaxation time. Yeah, um, uh, no, I enjoyed it. This is uh, very enjoyable. I uh, yeah, uh, any if any of my nonsense can help somebody else not endure something, <laughs> stay, I, stay away from Tijuana layovers. That's right. <laughs> or you know, if you have a long layover, eh, you know. Yeah, have a little stay fun. From, stay away from. Have a little fun. I'd stay stay away from Tijuana right now in general, but that's another story. Yeah, so. I've been avoiding uh, south border trips for a while. I'm not scared. I just don't want to deal with it. Well, you can't bring two iPads. That's right. Although I've never been fined. Have you been fined? I've not been fined. I've brought my. I have my laptop and an iPad. And they've and never. They've never even. They once asked me, "Go, is this your personal computer?" I said, "Yes, it is." And she goes, "Okay, thank you. Have a nice day." I've never even been. Nothing. I heard the nightmare from the captain that he brought a guitar with him <laughs> and they kept him in, in in the Mexican customs in Cancun for over an hour and a half while his crew were like, where the hell is the captain? He brought his guitar and they wanted to charge him some astronomical fee for bringing in his personal guitar. It's like, what are you talking about? What is going on? He's like, you are going to go to the beach and take money away from our mariachis. <laughs> and he goes, I... I make. Do you know how much money I make? Do you think I can? They had to call the chief pilot. The chief pilot ended up because he wasn't going to pay the fine. And the chief pilot ended up going, "Listen, dude, just I got them to waive the fine. I promised them that you wouldn't pull it out of the case. You know." He goes, "Why? Well, just start practicing in my hotel room. I mean, come on, and just and, tell them you're not going to pull it out of the case for God's so, sake." Yeah. You know? So I wonder if he made any money by playing the guitar down on the I beach. I hadn't even thought about tips. that, but now that you know, I have to learn the guitar now. That's it. So the harmonica is a lot easier to carry. That's right. And if you do wind up doing jail time, it serves another purpose. That's right. So. <laughs> well, again, thank you. Yep. Uh, time to get ready. Okay. Yeah. I guess we got to go. And uh, to everyone out there, I just want to say thank you so much for listening in on this flight, flight 131 of the Squawk Ident podcast. Just want to say a final thank you to Captain Dave for sitting down with me on this episode, learning about his journey. Did you enjoy listening in on our flight today? Then we'd hope that you'd like to pay it forward by sharing this podcast with your friends and family. Make sure you subscribe or follow to the Squawk Ident podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. We also love listener feedback, so send us some. You can do it right there on the website at aviatortony.com. That's Alpha Victor, the number eight, Robio Tango Oscar, November Yankee.com. You can send us an email or even an audio file. You can do that right from your cell phone. Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram users could also find us under the Squawk Ident Podcast. One final thank you to all of you for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there, be safe, and take care of each other. Bye, y'all. That was a lot of fun. Good. I didn't find this. That was great.